Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, everybody, welcome to Standing for Truth. I want to thank everybody for being here for tonight's epic, epic debate. We have two very seasoned debaters, Matt Slick and Dr. Shabir Ali. They will be debating the important topic and question, is God one or three divine persons? Matt and Shabir, thank you so much for giving us your time for tonight's very important debate. Thanks for having us thank on. You. Yeah, I'm so glad. Yeah. My pleasure. I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this uh, all month, actually, since we scheduled <laughs> it. So um, before we uh, get into the opening statements, though, uh, let's get to know the debaters a little bit. Uh, again, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Shabir, uh, since this is your first time on the channel, how about we start with uh, with you? A little bit about who you are, uh, what people can expect to find over at your ministry, and uh, why you find these, these topics uh, so important to discuss and debate. Sure. Uh, my name is Shabir Ali. I was born in uh, Guyana in South America. I migrated to Canada about, uh, I don't know uh, how long it's been now, maybe 40 years. I'm giving away my age here, uh, but my white beard already does that ahead of time anyway. Uh, so I uh, completed my, most of my education in Canada. With, uh, I went on to a master's degree and then a PhD at the University of Toronto in Quranic Interpretation. And uh, now I... Uh, uh, function as uh, an imam, a faith leader in Toronto. Uh, had it not been for the pandemic, I would have been traveling uh, to deliver lectures and uh, engage in uh, dialogues like this uh, around the globe. But uh, in a way, I'm happy that I'm at home uh, with my family, more time this way. And uh, I'm so delighted to be able to join you all here uh, tonight. Awesome. I appreciate that uh, introduction. Uh, Shabir, thank you so much. And uh, Matt, Matt, go ahead a little bit about yourself, uh, what's going on over at your ministry. And uh, you are muted, so just uh, <laughs> make sure you unmute yourself. And... Yeah, I cleared my throat, so I muted myself. Yeah, my name is Matt Slick, real name, last name Slick. Uh, Ex-minister, been doing apologetics since 1980. My website, karm.org, had, uh, has had so far 147 million visitors. I'm on, uh, in fact, it'll be um, in, about, uh, in about a week, it'll be uh, 26 years old. So there you go. I'm on 16 radio stations, written several books, two debates, talked about all kinds of topics, enjoyed defending the, the, the my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and hopefully it'll be a good discussion tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Matt. Thanks again, uh, Shabir, both of you. Uh, I appreciate you giving us your time for this important debate. Uh, so what I want to do is really quickly go over the format for uh, tonight. Uh, so everybody in the audience, uh, we have a, a formal debate. We're going to be starting off with opening statements, 15 minutes each. Uh, Matt will be starting us off uh, with that. Then we're going to have uh, our first rebuttal will be 10 minutes each. Then our second rebuttal will be five minutes, minutes each. We're going to have uh, a cross-examination, 15 minutes each. 
uh, with roughly five questions uh, asked from each debater, with one minute for each question to be asked and two minutes for each question to be answered. Then we're gonna have five minute uh, concluding statements. And then this is where we get you involved. Everybody in the audience, we're gonna have a roughly uh, 25 to 30 minute audience Q&A. Uh, so make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth. Uh, this is a great topic. And uh, therefore, shoot me in some, some really good questions for an, uh, an awesome audience Q&A. So that being said, uh, let's get right into the debate then. Uh, Matt, we're going to hand it over to you. Uh, whenever you're ready, um, you have the floor and you have uh, 15 minutes. All right. Well, thank you. Um, great. Let me get this going. And I'm going to hit my own clock. There we go. Got it. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And Shabir, thanks for uh, debating me on this topic. I think it's a very important topic. So tonight, our, our uh, debate topic is, uh, is God one or three divine persons? This is a very serious issue. So uh, we will both use scripture and logic to defend our positions. Now, I will attempt to show problems with the idea that God is one person and that Trinitarianism solves these problems. I'll then try to demonstrate that the Trinity is derived from Scripture. And if uh, Shabir cannot uh, answer these challenges to Unitarianism, nor if he is not able to defeat, defeat the logic of the Trinity and how it's derived from Scripture, then, well, he's not done his job uh, as a Muslim. But let me uh, begin here with the definition of terms because we're going to introduce the concept of person because is one is God one person or three persons? So according to Stephen C. Evans' Pocket Dictionary of Apologetics and Philosophy of Religion, personhood, the unique status shared by human beings, angels, and God that involves the power to think, act, and value. Traditional theories of personhood stress that persons are substances of a rational nature. More contemporary theories emphasize the ability to act and have emotions, and these often link personhood to the ability to use language and relations to other persons. So the characteristics also of personhood include such things as self-awareness, awareness of others, having a will, being able to love, being able to speak, have fellowship, reason, etc. Well, I did a comparison between the Bible and the Quran uh, according to Yahweh and Allah. And I have the references in both books right here. I can give them if he asks for them. But to save time, I'm not quoting them all. Uh, where it says that uh, God, in both books, God has nothing against which he could be compared. God exhibits the attributes of personhood when he speaks, is aware of others, as well as himself, shows that he has a will, shows loving kindness, hears, knows, and is someone with whom believers can have fellowship. Now, clearly, both the Bible and the Quran present their respective gods as possessing attributes of personhood. Our personhood, according to the Bible, is a reflection of the personhood of God. In Christianity, we affirm this because we're made in God's image, Genesis 126. Now, likewise, in Islam, Adam was made in God's image in the Hadith uh, 6227 from al-Bukhari. Allah created Adam in his image, and he was 60 cubits tall. Now, <clears throat> let me offer a definition of the Trinity, and uh, I'm going to go to my article on the Trinity, the Trinity chart, which I published on October 15, 2016. The Trinity is one God in three distinct simultaneous persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the same person as the Son. The Son is not the same person as the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the same person as the Father. They are not three gods, 
and not three beings. They are three distinct persons, yet they are all the one God. Each has a will, can speak, can love, etc. And these are demonstrations of personhood. Now, a word or a phrase does not have to occur in the Bible for the concept to be there. For example, the word atheism is not in the Bible, but the concept is there. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Likewise, it is not necessary to find in the Bible any phrase that goes something like this. There's only one eternal God who exists in three simultaneous co-eternal distinct persons. Nor is it the contrary, there's only one eternal God who exists as one person. The issue is not if specific sentences occur in the manner that critics might require of them. The issue is whether or not the doctrine of the Trinity is coherent and is revealed in Scripture and is, uh, as I'll show, against Unitarianism. So to demonstrate this, what I hope to do is to show that the idea of God being one person is ultimately incoherent and the Trinity is coherent. Now. I hope that Dr. Ali Shabir will uh, agree with me that God is perfect in his essence, his efficiency, his knowledge, judgments, freedom of will, and that he is also eternally self-sufficient and non-contingent. He has no capacity for improvement. He is maximally perfect, and there is nothing against which he could be compared. I suspect he'd also agree with me that God reveals himself to us and communicates with us in Scripture. This means, at the least, he's aware of himself and of others. Now, <clears throat> our personhood consists of self-awareness, awareness of others, fellowship, love, communication, emotions, reciprocity, contemplation, knowledge, reason, and the exercise of free will. In the Bible, God exhibits these same attributes, and we recognize the attributes of personhood within his nature. Now, if God were a single person, as Islam teaches. Then from eternity past, though he could have expressed some attributes of personhood like self-awareness and contemplation, Allah could not have exhibited the full characteristics of, of his personhood, including such things as fellowship and love. There would be no one with whom to have fellowship or express loving kindness or be loved by. There would be no reciprocity and there would be no fellowship. This means, this is important, this means that such characteristics would not be essential and necessary qualities of his nature because their actuality would depend upon creation for their manifestation. This in turn means that God's complete expression of personhood, which includes fellowship, loving kindness, communication, would be dependent on interactions with those outside of himself, namely creation. But if God's full expression of personhood depends on other beings, then how is he perfect and also lacking in nothing? This, I believe, is just one of the major flaws with the Unitarian God of Islam. I hope uh, Shabir can offer a cogent response to this challenge. Now, if God were two persons, then there would be no characteristics of personhood dependent on something other than himself. He would be able to express fellowship and loving kindness as well as communication. However, it would mean that fellowship, communication, love, etc. between the two persons would necessitate an impersonal characteristic as part of the binatarian God. Love, for example, is something exchanged and expressed. Love is not self-aware. Therefore, it is an abstraction. This would suggest that there would be a fundamental part of God's nature of personhood that is impersonal, namely love, the thing being exchanged. But this is problematic since God is, by nature, personal. How could there be an impersonal aspect that creates the context of the personal relationship? This also is problematic.
If God were three persons, then each of the persons could mediate the fellowship, love, and communion between the other two. There would be no impersonal aspect that creates the context of the personal relationship. Everything is personal in the in a Trinitarian God who is by nature personal. The Trinitarian context would also demonstrate the most efficient and minimal actuality of personhood because it is the context that actualizes the fullness of personhood without a non-impersonal characteristic. Therefore, four or more persons would not be minimally efficient for a perfect being. Furthermore, if uh, Shabir asked why the Christian God isn't for or more, I refer him back to the statement. Not only would he be ignoring the previous analysis, but he would be offering an external critique. In other words, he would be challenging the Christian God, which is Trinitarian, not Quadratarian. Instead, he'd be arguing against something that Christians do not affirm. Now, another potential problem in Unitarianism is solitude. By analogy, since we are made in God's image, if we take a person and put him in a room with no light, a neutral temperature, no communication with anyone, no fellowship, no loving kindness, etc., and left him there by himself for his entire life, this would be a form of torture. How then is an eternal God of one person who cannot fully express his personhood and is eternally alone with nothingness not analogous to the same kind of torture? It's a question worth discussing. But in Trinitarianism, the problem doesn't exist because each member of the Godhead would be having eternal fellowship with one another in eternity past. Add to this to the concern of the eternal solitude of single person God, the, the concept faces serious challenges. And I think it's something worth discussing as well. There's yet another problem. See, <clears throat> within the God of Islam, we have the problem of the one and the many. This is a very serious topic that has plagued proponents of philosophy and theology for centuries. It deals with the justification of knowledge when dealing with universals and particulars. Now, let me explain this. Hopefully, it won't be too difficult for people. In the context of God is the ultimate truth that reflects God's nature, an issue of the one or the many. From, from God, do we derive universals and particulars as separate things or unity and diversity as a unified actuality? Which reflects God's nature better and thereby provides further justification for our knowledge? Now, this is a very deep topic, and I'm willing to discuss it but it shows the problems with the Unitarian position. We might recognize the universal concept of duckness, like a bird, a duck, as a unifying concept, but can count four particular ducks swimming in a pond. This is particulars. When we ask, what is the most fundamental thing? Is it universals or particulars, unity or diversity? Is it duckness or, in this case, the four ducks? If unity is ultimate, then there is nothing that differentiates the particulars. If particulars are ultimate, then there's nothing that justifies their unity. If we don't delve into these depths of serious logical discussion, then we can't really justify the issue of our complete knowledge. If Allah is a single person, then how does he, his Unitarian nature provide a cogent precondition for dealing with the problem of the one and the many? <clears throat> You see, Allah is one person, then that would mean that his unity is ultimate. But this would mean then that Allah's nature could not be the grounding to explain particulars. This is a problem concerning the justification of knowledge of the things we observe in the universe. But in Trinitarians, both unity and diversity are equally present. 
The one unity of God is expressed as three particulars known as persons. Therefore, the Trinity provides coherence in the age-old issue of relationships between the one and the many, universals and particulars. This then supports the justification for Christian knowledge. Now, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is not derived from a single verse, nor is it refuted by a single verse. Nothing in the Bible says that God is only one person. But we do find where God speaks as a single person, yet also speaks in a plurality. This is consistent with Trinitarian theology, and I can show a lot of this in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. But in Isaiah 44.24, he says that he makes all things by himself. The us must refer to God. We can go to Genesis 11.7, where God says, let us go down and confound their language. We can go to Genesis 19.24, where it says, Yahweh rained fiery brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of heaven. There are many such instances of plurality mentioned in the scripture, but I don't have time to go into them all. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at systematically. If Shabir wants to discredit the Trinity, then he must not only deal with the previously mentioned challenges to Unitarianism, but he also must invalidate the logical system by which the Trinity is derived. And let me explain how it's derived. The Bible teaches that there's only one God. Isaiah 43, 44, and 45 teach this. But the Bible also says that the Father is called God, the Son is called God, and the Holy Spirit is called God. And I can provide all the references for everything I'm saying here. In addition, all three exhibit attributes of personhood. Each is all-knowing, each has a will, each loves, each speaks, and we can have fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To deny the Trinity is to deny all of these truths which are clearly taught in Scripture. Therefore, if the Trinity is derived systematically from the whole of Scripture, then that system needs to be addressed and shown to be false. If my opponent Mr. Shabir, uh, does, uh, Dr. Shabir does not do that, then he's not refuted the doctrine of the Trinity. So in conclusion, there is a problem with an eternal being who is a single person who cannot manifest the fullness of his personhood unless there's a creation with which to fellowship and to love and to speak, etc. This shows an insufficiency and incompleteness in his nature, which is expressed in his personhood. The Trinity solves this problem. Now, there is no problem. Uh, there, excuse me. There's a, another problem of eternal solitude with the Trinity, Unitarian God of Islam, where he would be alone in nothingness forever, something that by analogy we would consider torture. The Trinity also solves this problem. Furthermore, we have the issue of the one and the many, which is solved by the construction of the doctrine of the Trinity. Its posit, its position, its presupposition can provide the necessary precondition for intelligibility, the necessary precondition to deal with this huge philosophical issue of the one and the many, the universals in particulars. So since there's only one God, the Father's called God, the Son is called God, and the Holy Spirit is called God, each is all-knowing, possesses a will, can love, speaks, and can have fellowship with us, then we see here that the doctrine of the Trinity is right there in Scripture. Now, I can spend a lot of time on this, but of course we don't have time. If this is the eternal manifestation of the fullness, in this we do have this eternal manifestation of personhood, and without the issue of torture related to potential torture, related to the eternal solitude of a single person who exists eternally by himself, in nothingness, without fellowship, without attribution of, 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 uh, of love and giving. See, the Trinity ultimately makes a lot more logical sense than Unitarianism, and it's also based in Scripture. And hopefully, during the debate, we'll get into both of these or all of these even more. Thank you. All right. I appreciate that, Matt. Perfect, perfect timing. 
Uh, let me restart it here. Uh, before I hand it over to Shabir, uh, thank you to everybody in the chat. We've got a great chat already. Uh, please keep tagging me with your questions. We've already got some great questions for the Q&A. So that being said, uh, Dr. Ali, we're going to hand it over to you for your 15-minute uh, opening statement whenever you're ready. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm ready. So, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends, uh, I'm so delighted to be able to speak with you here today. I begin by praising our creator and fashioner, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I ask uh, God to send peace and blessings upon all of his prophets and messengers, uh, and uh, may God bless us all here tonight, and uh, use this uh, uh, dialogue for, for the furtherance of that truth, uh, which he wants us all to accept uh, for our salvation. I'm so delighted that Matt has agreed to have this uh, dialogue with me, and I thank Lonnie for inviting me uh, to his uh, platform. Uh, now, I listened to Matt with uh, care, and uh, I have learned a lot from uh, reading his uh, uh, a couple of his books uh, prior to this. Not, not the entire books, but uh, as much of it as I could get through. And uh, I've also benefited from reading many of his uh, articles on his uh, website. And, of course, from listening to him here as as well. Uh, so let me uh, say uh, from uh, my perspective that I want that uh, in a dialogue like this, so we emerge as friends, uh, getting a better understanding of each other and of each other's uh, religions and perhaps uh, even of our own uh, religions. Uh, Math has asked some questions here which will uh, cause me to introspect and, and think about my own religious teachings as well. Now, why do I think that uh, the God is one person? Well, obviously, because I believe in the Quran, which emphasizes uh, the oneness of God. And uh, uh, also because uh, in, you know, for when we think about arguments for the existence of God, uh, usually we uh, advance arguments that will have us conclude that there is one God. There is a God. At the moment somebody asks, is there a God? Uh, that question itself presupposes that we're talking about the possibility of one God being in existence, a God. Uh, so the cosmological argument, the ontological argument for the existence of God, and uh, the design argument, all of these uh, point to the existence of a God, and uh, hence by presupposition, one God. Now, Matt has uh, advanced some philosophical arguments to uh, show that God has to be more than uh, one, uh, and we'll, we'll come to those uh, arguments uh, in, and, and elaborate on those. Uh, now, I would like to say that there are three arguments which uh, would uh, show that uh, the Trinitarian position is not a correct one, and uh, that God is really one person. Uh, I would like to focus my points under three headings, uh, and I will label each with the letters, the first three letters that form the word three, so T-H-R. I would say the T is for text uh, of scripture, the R is for reason, and uh, the, the H, the H is for history. Let me start with the history. Because that's that's simpler and, and it's less, uh, less debated. Uh, we can see on Matt's website that uh, there are, uh, uh, creeds which are which are put up. Um, he shows, for example, the uh, Niceno-Cosmopolitan Creed, uh, Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, which he labels as being from 325 in the heading, but uh, he describes later on as gi being given in the form of the 381 revision. Now, 
uh, we would like to see them both side by side. When we see them both side by side, we can see that there is a very important revision uh, that was introduced into the uh, creed in the year 381. That is the revision that uh, for the first time in a, in, 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 uh, among these creeds uh, would say that the Holy Spirit is to be worshiped along with the Father and the Son. So we see a development here from 325 to 381. That doesn't mean that no Christian before 381 was worshiping the, the the Holy Spirit. Maybe for hundreds of years prior to that, some Christians were worshiping the Holy Spirit, but now it becomes formal doctrine. And we can see if we take these uh, uh, creeds as snapshots of uh, what the, uh, the Christian church agrees on uh, as a whole, uh, we can see that for the first time in 381, there is a, a, a wide agreement on, uh, uh, enough of an agreement to put it in the creed that the Holy Spirit is to be worshiped along with the Father and the Son. Now, if we go back earlier than that, we have the Apostles' Creed, which really was uh, in the form that we have it now, came to us much later, but uh, scholars uh, believe that this uh, comes from about maybe the second or third century of Christianity, and hence before the Nicene Creed. Now, what's different about the Apostles' Creed? In the Apostles' Creed, Jesus is not identified as God. So in the year 325, for the first time in, in one of these creeds, we have him identified as God. So you can see that there is a development here from the Apostles' Creed to the, the first Nicene Creed to the uh, second Nicene Creed. Uh, first, Jesus was not recognized as God, only uh, the Father was recognized as God. Then Jesus is recognized as God, and oh, wait a minute, the third uh, of these creeds, uh, the 381 revision, gives us the Holy Spirit also uh, to be worshipped along with the Father and the Son. So we can see that uh, this is not something that was clear to Christians from the inception. It's not like scriptures, scripture passages really necessitated this and people arrived at this from the inception. Uh, this comes uh, as a, a result of many um, hundreds of years of Christians debating with each other, um, castigating some beliefs as heretical beliefs and then arriving at this. Now, going deeper, we see that uh, scholars of this period uh, show us that before people uh, identified the, the, the Trinity as a Trinity, uh, one can speak of a triad. For example, uh, in the book entitled uh, The Early Christian Doctrine of uh, God by Robert Grant, uh, we, we find that he finds it necessary uh, to distinguish between a, 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 a church father speaking about a triad and a church father speaking about a trinity. Trinity is the uh, attempt to show that they are one. But triad is speaking about the three without any attempt to show that they are one. So we can see that there was an earlier stage where there was a triad. And then eventually the scholars tried to, they, the Christian fathers tried to make that, make that into a trinity to show how they can still be one. And even prior to that, we have a dyad, uh, as uh, Larry uh, Hortado has, has, has shown, uh, prior to the triad, there was uh, the, the discussion of a dyad. Um, and uh, at one time he was uh, speaking of Unitarianism, but he thinks in his later writings that uh, it's, it's more correct to say a, a dyad. And so we can see a development from uh, the very inception uh, where God is perceived of as a monad, a single person, then he comes to be conceived of as a dyad, and then eventually a triad. First, there is Unitarianism, then there is Binitarianism, and then finally, Trinitarianism. So we see this evolution over time, and we realize that if you go back farther enough, uh, then 
uh, we are, if we go back far enough, we are arriving back at the, the original Unitarian uh, belief. How far do we have to go? We have to go back even uh, through the Gospels. And uh, this is where I come now to the text of Scripture. Uh, when we look at the text of Scripture, uh, we, we have to know how to understand the text of Scripture. Um, uh, Matt says on his website that Mark was the first gospels, uh, gospel to be written, not necessarily by absolute proof, but this is widely recognized. And uh, John is recognized as the last of the gospels to be written of the four that's in, that are in the New Testament. When we compare the image of Jesus that is there in the gospel according to Mark with what, what is there in the gospel according to John, you see a world of difference. And uh, the difference is with the passing of time. With the passing of time, people started to think of Jesus in more divine terms. And this is why we have in the gospel according to John uniquely uh, that Jesus is declared to be the word of God who was there from the beginning, who uh, was uh, the, the agent through which God created the world. Notice that John here is in, in John chapter 1, verse 1 uh, to 18, uh, John is rewriting uh, the Genesis narrative. In the Genesis narrative, Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning of the Bible, uh, we read of God creating the heavens and the earth, and uh, there is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep, uh, but there's no mention of uh, some uh, entity called the Logos of God. Uh, sure, God speaks there. So you might say this is God's word by which he creates everything. But that's his spoken word, his commandment, uh, calling things into existence. It's not another entity uh, that is calling things into existence or consciously, deliberately uh, as a person creating uh, things uh, besides God. In, in Proverbs, uh, if Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, we have uh, a... Uh, personification of God's wisdom, speaking as though this is a distinct person saying that she was there with God at the beginning, uh, measuring everything out. But that, that's that's poetic personification. And if one were, were wanted to press that further, one would have to look at the fact that there, wisdom says, uh, Yahweh created me. So we're dealing with a created entity, if at all. Now, in Paul's writings in the New Testament, Paul is identifying Jesus with that wisdom. And uh, John uh, took another concept that is similar but but yet different, uh, the concept of Logos, to say that Jesus was the Logos of God through which God created everything else. So you see a sort of development here from Mark's gospel, which tries to represent Jesus on the ground. We can see Jesus speaking. We can see him interacting with others. Uh, we can see both his power and his limitation. And the later uh, writers, uh, uh, not necessarily later writer, because Paul wrote probably before Mark, uh, but uh, a later conception that is there in Paul's writings and in the writings of, of John, uh, in which Jesus is presented as the agent through which God created everything else. Now, to be sure, for both John and Paul, uh, Jesus is not the ultimate God. He is a sort of middling God. He is a, a great God, but he's not the almighty God. Uh, this is why John chapter 1, verse 1, it speaks the way it does. In arche, in hologos, in hologos, kai hologos, in prostantion, kai theos, in hologos. In the beginning uh, was the... Uh, was the uh, word and the word was with God and the word was divine, which would be the best way of translating it. But uh, Daniel Wallace, uh, an expert uh, on, on translation, uh, says we, we won't use 
it that way, though Moffat gave it that rendering, because nowadays uh, people think of divine as meaning many things. Many things can be divine. Angels can be divine and so on. And of course, we might add that somebody may eat uh, a, a chocolate cake and say that this is divine. Uh, so because of the ambiguity of the term, he uh, shies away from it. But he uh, emphasizes that uh, the, uh, the, the statement there is a qualitative statement. Jesus has this kind of uh, divine quality, not that he is God. And uh, of course, definitely he is not the father. Everybody agrees on that. And, and we, we know that Matt agrees with that as well. So, so much for the, the texts. When we look at the texts, the most you get out of the texts is to say that Jesus is a divine being that is somewhere between God and human beings, but he's not ultimately God himself. We know from Paul, for example, uh, that Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 says that uh, above every woman is her husband, above the, the man is Christ, and above Christ is God. Uh, and so, so there's a hierarchy of being. And in 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, uh, Paul says that in the end, everything will be handed over back to God so that God will be uh, all in all. That shows the eternal subordination uh, of uh, the Christ figure. In John's gospel, John shows that Jesus is lesser than the Father, 1428, the Father is greater than I. And John shows that Jesus praying in 17.3, saying that they may know you as the only true God, and Jesus, your messenger, is Christ. So he has a lower function and the status. He's Christ, but the one he was addressing in prayer, that is the one who is the only true God. Now, coming to reason. Uh, now, Matt has uh, uh, put forward some reasonable arguments here from philosophy, which we will have a chance to explore further. But given the limited time, let me say that it is easy for one trying to uh, assert the Trinity and explain it to fall into heresy. And uh, um, James White has uh, called attention to this in his book, The Forgotten Trinity. And uh, I would say that uh, because the Trinity is so complicated and difficult to actually grasp in a person's mind, uh, the, it, it's very unlikely that uh, the writers of the Bible intended to um, give us that doctrine. Otherwise, they would have been at pains to spell it all out to make sure uh, that the faithful following would not fall into the error of heresy while trying faithfully to believe in the Trinity. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the position that Matt has expounded elsewhere, and probably he will elaborate here on here now, uh, is that uh, you know the, the, the three persons, each one is, is, is a divine being, uh, yeah, but we don't have three gods. We only have one God. But by saying one God, we get the impression as though he's talking about an entity called God. But of course, on, on further probing, it seems to me that he's not talking about an entity that is called God. He's talking about the three divine persons uh, and, and we're calling them God. It's almost like if we look at the triangle, we see it has three sides. We, we recognize this to be the shape of a triangle. But let's say someone just uh, places the dot at each uh, corner and removes the triangle. We will still see the triangle, but the triangle is not really there. So when we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, in this course, we're we are thinking of the God that is the unity of the three, but in fact, there is no actual entity there. So 
I would uh, say that uh, it, it behooves uh, Matt to explain further his concept of the Trinity, but the one which he's explaining in the best of my um, understanding, uh, this is the doctrine that is being condemned by other Christian scholars uh, as, uh, as a uh, as tritheism. Um, of course, Matt will, pro uh, will um, protest and say, well, you know, we, we actually profess monotheism, but, but the profession of, of the belief and the, uh, and, and the implications of the belief could be two different things. Uh, Donnie, am I out of time? Uh, yes, if you want to just wrap up your final thoughts there, uh, Shabir. Okay, so finally, uh, looking at uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and, and uh, Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, these are actually not proofs that uh, God is more than one person. And uh, when I come back, uh, God willing, I will expound on, on these, responding to the points that Matt made in his opening presentation. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate that, uh, Shabir. Thank you uh, for your opening statement, uh, gentlemen, uh, Shabir and Matt. Uh, we are now moving into the rebuttal portions of the debate. So this is the first rebuttal. Uh, we've got 10 minutes on the clock. Again, I'll give you, uh, gentlemen, a uh, one-minute warning. Uh, Matt, we're going to hand it over to you. And on your first word, I will start. The we, have, we have 10 minutes, right? 10 minutes, you said? That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. No, oh, sorry. Let me uh, do my 10 minute. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I can see it. Sorry. No I thought it was going to be five. All right. You know, I am slick. So maybe I could talk real fast. <laughs> hey, I use that name. I paid for it when I was a kid. <laughs> All right. Okay. Here goes. All right. Well, thank you. Um, Shabir, I, I, I suspect you and I could probably have some off the air friendly conversations and just have a good discussion about things. I like doing that. Maybe we'll have that later tonight. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so I agree with you that God is uh, just one in all existence. I have no problem with that. Now, I did advance some philosophical arguments. You didn't address them. And I understand why, because you have a prepped uh, statement ahead of that. So we need to get into these things later. The, the issue here deals with the personhood of one, being, of one, well, one person, uh, the issue of solitude, the one and the many issue, and uh, the Trinity. So uh, hopefully we'll get into that. Um, I know you like acronyms. And... Uh, uh, but I thought about making one up myself, but I ran out of time. So maybe I'll, I'll send one to you. So Mark was a disciple of Paul. Let me just go through my notes and just answer what you said. Uh, Paul's writings were very early, and uh, you talked about the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, there are developments of doctrines. Even in the Quran, there's abrogation, certain things that come later that supersede things taught earlier. So the concept of abrogation and clarification is certainly Quranic as well as biblical. And <clears throat> what we find in Mark 1, verses 2 and 3, says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. That means Yahweh because it's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. This starts out right away saying that Jesus is the one who is Yahweh. Make ready the way of Yahweh. Make his path straight. The messenger that was sent ahead was John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. Now we can see the same thing occurs in Matthew 3, 3 and Luke 3, 4. Now does the book of John talk about the deity of Christ? Oh, yes, it does. You can go to John 1, 1, verse 14, Colossians 2, 9. We can go to different verses all over inside. We can talk about it. But for now, well, we don't have all that time. 
Now, uh, when Shabir says that Jesus is somewhere between divine and human, he's not discussing the Christian uh, person of Christ at this point. Uh, he's, uh, what he's demonstrating is he doesn't apparently, no disrespect meant, understand the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And that doctrine is a teaching that in the one person of Christ are two distinct natures, 100% God and 100% man in the one person. Now, if Muslims say to me, that's not possible, then I say, how is the divine word of Allah, which is supposed to be eternal, some say it is, some say it isn't, manifested in the Quran? You have the divine thing in flesh. Aren't there two aspects there? We could discuss that relationship. But this is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, he brought up the issue of hierarchy. Yeah, there's a hierarchy. We don't deny that. But there's a difference between subordination and subordinationism because both have been dealt with in church history and through Christian theology and stuff like that. Subordination, for example, I'm married. My uh, very lucky wife who married me because that shows how smart she is, <clears throat> is under my authority in the house, in the marriage. But it does not mean that I'm better than her or different in nature than her. It just means that I'm greater than her in that authority. Now, remember, in Jesus, it says in Galatians 4, 4, he was made for a little while. I mean, that's Hebrews 2, 9, made for a little while, Lord and the angels. In Galatians 4, 4, he was made under the law. As someone under the law, he is then obligated to follow the law. Hence, he'll say things like Genesis or uh, Genesis. Uh, excuse me, John 17, 3, the only, uh, you know, the one true God, Father, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we'll talk about that probably later. He'd also say in John 14, 28, the Father's greater than I. It does not say the Father's better or different, but just greater, and it's talking about his position. This is a very common attack on the deity of Christ, which demonstrates, again, no disrespect meant, a lack of understanding of the doctrine of the incarnation and the hypostatic union. And we haven't even gotten into the communicatio idiomatum. Now, Ali said that Jesus is ne not, never said to be God Almighty. Well, if you go to uh, Hebrews 2, excuse me, Hebrews 1 8, God the Father speaking, he says, But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's a quote from Psalm 45, verse 6. Clearly, it's God Almighty who's speaking there. Also, if you go to Exodus 6, 2 and 3, it says this. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Now, it doesn't say an angel, because some people say it's an angel of the Lord. It doesn't say that. It says God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. So God, the text says God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh, identifying himself as Yahweh. So if someone wants to say it's an angel, to go back to the text, it's what it says here. God speaking, and he says his name is uh, his name is Yahweh, and he appeared as God Almighty. But Jesus said in John six forty six that no one's ever seen the Father. That's what Jesus says, John six forty six. So here's the question: If they were seeing God Almighty in the Old Testament, but it was not God the Father, then who are they seeing in the Old Testament who's God Almighty but not the Father? This is a good Trinitarian support for the deity of Christ. And I can get into some other Old Testament particulars about that. Now, he said my arguments are reasonable. I'm glad to hear that. And I hope that uh, he would be willing to uh, examine them and maybe produce a response. What I'm going to do tomorrow is put up my opening statement up on the CARM website and my debates section. And he can read the whole thing. And if he wants, he can respond to it. Uh, but it's <clears throat> it's easy 
to try and say that the, the Trinity fell into heresy, it really is, is uh, it doesn't get anywhere. See, the Trinity is so, to say it's so complicated and difficult to grasp, it's very unlikely that the writers of the Bible intended to produce a doctrine. That's nothing but conjecture and opinion. And we want logic. We want evidence. We don't want, eh, I probably wouldn't have thought that. They probably thought this. It'd have been difficult to understand. Well, maybe, maybe not. So that's just conjecture. Now, <clears throat> he mentioned uh, the creeds on my website. Yes, different creeds developed because through history, different heresies were coming against the person of Christ, the nature of God, and so they developed. Creeds were modified and increased to deal with the new challenges to the Christian faith. So the development of the creeds support the idea of the Trinity because the Christian church got together and figured out exactly what the scripture is teaching. And you got to remember, during the first couple hundred years, they were, the Christians were fleeing. Rome was trying to kill them. They couldn't sit there and do all these councils and figure everything out. They had to hide. And then finally, later, when Christianity was legalized, they could get together and do creeds and say, now, what do we do with this? Let's look at the scriptures. So <clears throat> the issue ultimately is what does the Bible say? Now, that's the ultimate authority. Now, I believe that the Christian Trinitarian God provides a necessary precondition for intelligibility. I believe that the Christian God in his Trinitarian essence can then support the issue of the solution to the problem of the one and the many. How we can have universals, but yet also how we can have particulars. This is a very important question. If anybody says it's not an important question, then you're ill-informed philosophically. Doesn't mean you're stupid. I'm not saying that. You're saying it's just you're not aware of this issue that has existed for thousands of years, and it's a serious issue that the Trinitarian theological perspective solves. Because in the Trinity, we have unity as well as diversity. And remember again, just to remind you guys, with unity, a duck, the quality of duckness, we see four ducks in a pond, we have particular instances. Ducks can occur all over the world. That's a universal. What unites them and what joins them? Now, we have to say that ultimately, I think Shabir and I would agree, that God has to be the ultimate source of truth and the ultimate thing by which we look to judge what truth is and the ultimate support of truth. And I use this all the time in what is the ultimate source of things, my arguments with atheists. We have to be able to develop rational arguments because rationality comes out of and is re reflective of the mind of God, who is himself a universal. We can have particular instances of logical justifications, but how do we unify them only in the mind and the heart of the universal being who is God? I can get into this a lot more deeply, but won't have time right now. There's also the issue of the solitude of God. If personhood necessitates certain characteristics of fellowship and intimacy and love, then how is God able to express these, the Unitarian God, able to express these from eternity past? Well, he could not. This means then that these things are fully manifested only in the creation of, of, of uh, people by which he can have fellowship. The question then becomes, is God sufficient at that point or more complete upon the creation of, of someone else? Then we have the issue of the doctrine of the Trinity, which we'll get into later. One God, Isaiah 43, 44, 45, each was called the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are each called God in Scripture. Each is all knowing. We have fellowship with each. Each has a will and each speaks. This is how the doctrine of the Trinity is dealt with and is derived. This is where I go to all the time in all my debates with Unitarians, and not a single Unitarian ever 
has ever dealt with that issue and attacked the systematic approach dividing, uh, that we use to derive the doctrine of the Trinity from the scriptures. They go to other places like John 17, 3 or 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but they sad. never deal with that particular issue and they should. Thank you. All right. I appreciate that, Matt. Perfect. Perfect timing. Uh, we're now going to hand it over to uh, Dr. Ali. You, you have your 10-minute uh, rebuttal whenever you're ready. Uh, notice your, your prompt when I got close to the end of the time. Um, so you'll remind me at one minute? Yes. I'll, I'll give you a one-minute uh, reminder and then uh, a 10-second reminder. Uh, okay. But where will I see these reminders? Um, I'll, uh, I'll announce it over the mic. Okay. Okay. Then you don't need to. I'll, I'll just I'll just work with my own timer in that okay. case. Okay? okay. All right. I just got a little bit confused between my timer and not getting the prompt. Okay. No but it'll be fine. Okay. okay. But but in case I make a mistake, do feel free to you know <laughs> um, cut me off. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate it, Shabir. All right. So I'm ready to begin. All right. No problem. Go ahead. Okay, Matt, thank you very much for that uh, excellent uh, response uh, to the points that I've made and for that active engagement. I really appreciate that. I also appreciate your openness uh, to allowing for us to further discuss the points after this uh, dialogue is over. We don't have to settle all of the points here, and that takes the pressure off. It means that we don't have to prove a point. Uh, we, we, can, we can decide to study more, and I like that. Uh, now, I want to start, Matt, with uh, where you left off, uh, saying that the Unitarians are not answering you on the way in which the doctrine develops. So first, let, let me try to address that if I understand what, what the objection is. So uh, Christians uh, uh, start out with the idea that there is only one God. This is all over scripture. You don't have to find one verse or two verses to deal with that. It's everywhere. Um, but then Christians notice that Jesus is God. How did they notice this? Uh, um, Matt will say because it's there in, in the New Testament. And then if the, New Te if the Old Testament is read in the light of the New Testament, we can see it there in the Old Testament as well. But I would like to direct Matt and others back to Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, where we have a 30-year history after Jesus uh, leaves the scene. And we see how people were behaving in that time. You can see that people took uh, human beings for gods very easily. Uh, uh, Barnabas and Paul were preaching in a certain location. The people said, oh, this is uh, Zeus and Hermes, two gods, and they brought their animals to make sacrifices to them. Paul and Barnabas protested, man, we are only humans like you. Do not do this. But they could not, despite their pro protests, uh, prevent people from making the sacrifices to them. They were so convinced that these are gods from heaven. So that's how easy, easily in that period of time people took human beings for gods. Uh, it seems to me that uh, that something like this happened in the case of Jesus. Jesus was a great man. When he was preached in the Greco-Roman environment, people started saying that he is the son of God. And then from son of God in a metaphorical sense, uh, people took it to be literally the son of God, especially the Greco-Romans. And uh, eventually, when they thought he's the son of God, they thought that he must be of God's nature, and therefore somehow he must be divine as well. And eventually the line between Jesus and God 
got blurred. He started to be championed as God. And eventually that was ruled in the year 325, some 300 years after Jesus had left the scene. So I think that's very important. You cannot just uh, say, okay, well, you know, Christians did not have a chance to develop this uh, because they were in hiding. Well, uh, not really, because look, gospels were produced. Ma Mark was produced. Matthew and Luke were produced. John was produced. All of the New Testament epistles, some 27 documents altogether. We have the church fathers writing back and forth. So why didn't they work out the doctrine of the Trinity? Why didn't we not, don't we have it in a particular uh, early church father, the entire doctrine uh, properly spelled out so that people will not make a mistake because they would know from the inception it is so easy to make a mistake. If you uh, de-emphasize the divinity of any one of the persons, then that is a heresy. If you uh, overemphasize the divinity of any one of them to make him greater than the others, well, then that's a heresy. If you deny the distinction between the persons, you conflate them all together, that's a heresy. If you think that the son is the father or the son is the Holy Spirit, then this is uh, a, a heresy. So all of this needed to be spelled out in great detail, but the writers did not intend to teach us the Trinity. All they were saying is that there is one God, and that one God has an emissary, Jesus, who is the agent through which God created everything else. At least some of the writers are saying this, at least John and uh, Paul are, are saying this. But at the same time, they are pointing out that uh, there is a difference. Uh, the, God is great greater than, than Jesus. Now you have this idea of the, um, uh, the hypostatic union, that in Jesus, the one person, we have both the, the human and divine natures. Uh, that that is just uh, I mean the, the Bible doesn't tell you that that's just your way of saying uh, let's uh, assume that he is God and let's assume that he's man how can we put them all together let's give it a title uh, hypostatic union but the, giving it a title by itself the, and, and saying that this is what we believe that he's both uh, does not solve the problem how could he be both how could he be both God and and humans and human at the same time for him to be completely human he would have to have a human mind. And the human mind does not think that it is God. Uh, and at the same time, he would have to have a divine mind who knows that he is God. So how can you reconcile that? Jesus would have to have two minds, a human mind and a divine mind. So I'm asking Matt, does Jesus have, did Jesus have two minds, one human, one divine? And he says, well, you know, what about the communicato, communicato idiomatum? I can hardly pronounce it myself, and I'm sure that most Christians are not familiar with this uh, term. That, too, is a way of labeling a certain belief and saying that is our belief. It doesn't make the belief true. You cannot make a, tr a thing uh, true by giving it the label uh, to say this is true or, 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 you know, making it true by definition. The communicato Idiomatum just simply says that in the one person, uh, both of these uh, types of attributes are attributed to the one person. Uh, but of course, there are problems with that belief as well, because it would mean that Jesus in the womb of his mother was already God, and he should have known in the womb of his mother, I am God. And when he was born, he would know as a baby that he is God in a cradle with his diapers being changed. And uh, when his uh, parents uh, fled with him, uh, for his safety, he should have known that uh, hundreds of babies might be massacred uh, because he fled the scene while Herod was looking for, for him. Uh, so uh, why would he save himself and let the babies be uh, be massacred like that? This is, incident is better explained if we say that uh, God uh, sent an, a, an emissary here 
or, or God is causing a baby to be developed, and this baby will eventually grow into a man who will be commissioned by God uh, as a prophet, as a messenger, to give the message to humankind. Uh, but uh, to say that he was God from the beginning would make him, uh, if Jesus is a God-man, then uh, Jesus is a baby, baby Jesus would be a God-baby. And that would be the ultimate boss baby. But he doesn't seem to be operating as a boss baby on the scene. Uh, he just seems to be uh, going along with what people are doing for him and uh, to him. So it's uh, not, not only is there uh, obviously subordination uh, in, in, the, in the actual out, uh, outworking of the persons of the Trinity, uh, but we th this is eternal. Uh, uh, Paul is saying this is how it's going to be towards the end. And that's why we have a book published with the title, uh, The New Evangelical Subordinationism, with a question mark, because uh, evangelicals are weighing in both ways. Some are saying, no, we cannot accept this eternal subordinationism, and uh, this eternal subordination. And uh, others are saying, look, this is all we know. From the time we have seen Jesus, and now this is what is projected in Paul's First uh, uh, Corinthians 15:28. This means that Jesus uh, is—that's uh, all we know. He is subordinate to the Father, so uh, it must be like that from all eternity. And so we cannot solve that uh, issue by just saying because your wife is under your authority. Okay, somebody put her under your authority, like the Christian teachings put her under your authority. Uh, but who was there to put one under the authority of another? among the persons of the of the Trinity now there's a very important issue that has to be uh, um, you know addressed here and Matt is saying nobody for his 41 years of debating uh, has uh, you know addressed uh, this issue but I want to put it the other way uh, you have to prove not only that Jesus was ultimately God uh, like the Almighty God uh, or as you might put it a, a divine uh, person equal to the Father, but you also have to prove that the Holy Spirit is a person that is distinct from the Father and the Son. And what we find in the New Testament is that often the Holy Spirit, and especially in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is identified uh, as the charisma or force or power that comes from God, is not a personal uh, agent. And in the New Testament, uh, this uh, Holy Spirit is sometimes seen to be the Spirit of the Father, sometimes the Spirit of the Son, but it's not a third uh, person that one can say this is the third person of the Holy Trinity proven from the uh, New Testament, to the extent that uh, there is a verse in Paul's writings which says that the Lord is the Spirit, uh, which means that, uh, you know, if one is the other, then uh, Paul has committed uh, a heresy from the Trinitarian perspective, uh, equating one with the other, whereas they're supposed to be distinct. Now, looking at the verses uh, in which uh, uh, Matt sees a plurality, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, for example, he's saying, okay, well, Elohim here, it must be three persons. Uh, but Isaiah 44, 24, which he cites, quotes Yahweh as saying that he's the only one who was there at creation. So uh, if, if you take Elohim uh, in 126 to be three persons, then uh, Yahweh can only be one of those persons, at least the Yahweh who was speaking then, even if you say all three are Yahwehs. Uh, and then Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, seeing two Yahwehs there, again, is a, a contradiction uh, because... Yahweh is, is elsewhere says, I am Elohim, and Elohim says, I am Yahweh. So Yahweh is Elohim. If Yahweh is three persons, uh, then we only have one um, uh, God here, one divine person, not two. Thank you.
perfect timing, uh, Shabir. I appreciate that. Um, thank you for the 10 minute rebuttal. And that concludes both the opening statements and the first rebuttal. We are now moving into our second rebuttal of, of five minutes. Uh, Matt, whenever you're ready, uh, the floor is yours and you have five minutes. All right, let me get my five minute timer thing going. And, uh, oh man. Actually, what I'll do, gentlemen, if it's okay with you, uh, Shabir, when it's your five-minute response too, just because I know when you're uh, responding and in deep thought, sometimes if if you just hear my audio saying, you know, 20 seconds, it might be distracting. Uh, if it works for you guys, I'll just leave the, the timer up to you. Okay. okay. I'm I'm generally good with my time, um, and, and I'm see, I see that Matt is as well, so... Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I don't care if, you know, you go over a little, it doesn't bother me any, you know, sometimes huh. thoughts just need a little bit more. So it works out. Perfect. We're both gentlemen. <laughs> yes. You guys make it easy. You uh, yeah. gentlemen make it very easy. So I appreciate it. Uh, Matt, whenever you're ready. Uh, <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> okay. Here goes. Um, so let me respond to his response. He said, the book of Acts shows that people are taking their human beings for God. Yeah. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is guilty in that category. It's just an inference. And it's like throwing mud at a wall, trying to see if it'll stick. Uh, the inspired writers wrote what they did, yeah. And um, it's they certainly did that under the inspiration uh, of, of, of God himself. And this is why we have uh, the Torah, the Psalms, the Injil. Um, now, the issue of, of God being the, the son of uh, Jesus being the son of God. A lot of people don't understand that the term son of God does not mean he's literally like Mormonism, the son of God through sexual uh, you know, relations and had a cohort. If you understand the cultural context, you'll see that if you go to John, excuse me, uh, yeah, John 5, 18, they were, they wanted to kill Jesus because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. If he's not, if, if the term son of God means he's not God, then what does the term son of man mean? Because he's called the son of man as well. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is derived out of the whole of Scripture, and he's still not addressed this. And uh, if he wants, I can explain it in more detail. It's Or just go to the Trinity chart on CARM. While I'm, I'm sitting here, go to the Trinity chart, look it up, Trinity chart, and uh, you can see the grid of how the Trinity's arrived at. It's right there. No one's debated, refutes it. They just dismiss it. So uh, to say that the writers of the New Testament did not intend to show the Trinity is another conjecture. He does not know what they intended. All right. So the hypostatic union, the Bible doesn't teach it. Well, yes, it does. Uh, you can go to Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Colossians 2, 9, for example. In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. I can go through this. I've written a great deal. And if he wants to debate in the deity of Christ, we can do that as well. Yes, how could it be both? I'm not exactly sure how it can be both. I don't have to understand the completeness of God any more than he has to understand the completeness of his God. There are certainly going to be things about God that are enigmatic because he is the infinite being. So when we say, is he human? Uh, yeah. And does he have a human mind? Yes. It's called dithelitism. You should study the hypostatic union more because the Christians have already dealt with these issues. Dithelitism from the Greek thaleo, to have two wills. There are two, what we have here in, in the one person of Christ, we have two natures, we have two wills, but they're expressed as a single will. 
and to say, well, that's just a word that you use to explain something difficult. No, it's, it's actually quite a bit more detailed than that. And I've had hundreds of conversations on this level dealing with dithelitism, hypostatic union, the communicatio idiomatum. And I can discuss these infinitum ad nauseum. I would love to if you're interested in that because they answer a lot of serious questions that a lot of people raise about it. We don't have time to do that. All right. Um, you go to Philippians 2, 5. Eh, we don't have time. Subordination. I'm going to tackle that. I can't deal with everything. Subordination is different than subordinationism. And if Christians claim that they are coming up with something new and correcting things and different, then they can have their time here. And I'll debate them on that. But the issue is, how is it that Jesus could be a sort of eternally subordinate? Go to Ephesians 1, 4. has to do with election and the calling. Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. This deals with the issue of federal headship, which I hope he knows about. Deals with the issue of eternal sonship of Christ in relationship to God because he knows all things eternally. There's no time in which God made a decision. Hey, here's some new information. Therefore, the son was always in the position of the son because he was always going to be the one who'd become incarnate. And... Uh, so that's the, the issue of, uh, of subordination. He said to me, prove that Jesus is God Almighty. Well, I did. You see, uh, in Exodus 6, 2 and 3, uh, it says, God says that he's Yahweh, and he appeared as God Almighty. But Jesus says in John 6, 46, that no one's ever seen God the Father. So who are they seeing who's not God the Father, but is God Almighty? The only logical explanation is Jesus. because That's why Jesus says, and he, the Son has explained him. And uh, John 1, 18, we can get into that as well. And let's see, uh, we don't have time for a whole bunch of other stuff. There are lots of Trinitarian quotes from the church fathers. We can get into that. I could go through that as well. There's lots of stuff in there in the defense of the Trinity. And again, I'm going to say that he has not dealt with how the Trinity has arrived at systematically, nor has he dealt with the pr problem of the one and the many, nor has he dealt with the issue of single uh, person solitary being alone for eternity and the ma full manifestation of personhood, nor has he dealt with the issue of the solitude nature of God analogous to torture from forever. And these are issues he's not even addressed yet. And so I would hope that he would. Thank you very much. All right. I appreciate that uh, five-minute rebuttal. Matt, uh, we're going to hand it over to you, Shabir, uh, whenever you're ready. The floor is yours. And you have five minutes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Matt, uh, you say that I haven't addressed the, the question of how the Trinity was arrived at. In fact, I have. I've shown that historically this is what uh, happened. It developed over time. People started to take Jesus as God. When they took Jesus as God, they realized, oh, oh wait a minute, we can only have one God. So how can we say that these are, are each God, but at the same time, we only have one God? They had to come up with a, a binitarian view. And eventually they thought about it and figured, oh, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, too. That's that's a person. So it looks like we have three divine persons. But wait a minute, the three have to be one God. So how can we explain that they are only one God? So they come up with Trinitarian explanations. This is how Binitarianism emerged and Trinitarianism emerged. Uh, it, it's not by original teaching. It was not there in the Old Testament. Uh, as James Charlesworth in his book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, pointed out, 
the uh, term, the Holy Spirit, as a technical term, does not occur anywhere in the Old Testament. Sure, you have mentions of uh, Spirit of God, you have mentions of Spirit of Holiness, but the term, the Holy Spirit, as a technical term, uh, as a as distinct person from God, uh, this is not there in the Old Testament. So it is a development. Uh, whereas if the Trinity were, were true, uh, we should have this throughout the Bible from the very inception, it should be very uh, clear. And as I've pointed out, to say that it is there in Genesis 1.26 and in Genesis 19.24, this just leads to contradictions. Uh, Genesis, for example, 19.24, uh, which says, you know, Yahweh rained uh, stones from Yahweh. Uh, it seems like you're talking about two Yahwehs, but of course we know that there is only one Yahweh by explicit declaration uh, in the very passages which uh, um, uh, Matt has been citing. There is only one God and besides him there is no other. And uh, this is very explicit, for example, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse number 21. And uh, so Yahweh is equated with Elohim and Elohim is equated to Yahweh. The moment you say, well, wait a minute, Elohim, that's plural, so it must be three. Uh, so then you're, you're negating Yahweh saying, I am the only one besides me, there is no other God. Because in the meantime, there must be two other Yahwehs laughing at his uh, statement. So the Trinity was arrived at uh, like that, and you don't have to arrive at it that way. You don't have to interpret the Bible that way. We see uh, perfectly good Christians who interpret the Bible uh, without a Trinitarian lens, and it all makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to say that the writers of the Bible intended, at least John and Paul intended, to show that Jesus is the agent through which God created everything else. This agent is subordinate to God. He is lesser than God. That's why he could say, the Father is greater than I. Now, you can look at, a, at at something that we might call a duck because it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, and we say this is a duck unless we get better information. Uh, now, somebody says, no, th this is not a duck. This, uh, this is a man who was transformed into a duck. Well, why do you claim that? Now, you look at Jesus. He walked like a man. He talked like a man, albeit a powerful man, uh, but he has limitations. In Mark's gospel, his limitations are evident, limitations in his knowledge, as, uh, in evident, as is evident in Mark chapter 13, verse number 32. No one knows that hour. Uh, so when he has limitations in his knowledge and limitations in his power, that means he's not the almighty God. He might be a great uh, human being. He might be a great angel. He could be even the archangel. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that he is God. So there's no need to conclude that he is God. And in concluding that he is God, that lands us into the problem of trying to explain how can he be God and man at the same time? And how could uh, both Jesus and the Father be God? And still we have only one God. So to avoid all of these problems, a simple explanation of the Bible uh, is uh, required. And, and that's what is arrived at by so many good and faithful uh, Christians. And uh, you say that, uh, you know, he's called the Son of God. And that too is a question. Why is he called the son of God? Because this is a subordinate term. Uh, why, why isn't he called like God, God's twin or God's copy uh, or God's, uh, um, you know, clone or something of this uh, nature? Uh, because son automatically shows that he is uh, subordinate. He wasn't making himself equal with God. That's his enemies who were making that claim. They're exaggerating. Jesus uh, made it plain to them that I'm only claiming to be the son of God and that too in a metaphorical manner because in, in the Bible, they the judges are called gods. So if they can be called gods, what's wrong with me saying I'm the son of God? John chapter 10, verse 30 and uh, uh, forward. And he's called son of man. Well, son of 
man, automatically it gives the impression that he is a human being and uh, limited. So that's all my time, uh, but it's been an interesting uh, exchange. Thank you all. Thank you so much, uh, Shabir. Uh, thank you to both for your opening statements and uh, rebuttals. Time's flying by. Uh, fantastic uh, debate so far, uh, gentlemen. And to the audience, uh, thank you for so many great questions that we have coming in. Uh, the audience Q&A is definitely going to be awesome. And let's uh, let's do our best to keep the questions on topic, with the topic being, of course, is God one or three divine persons? Uh, now we're moving into the uh, cross-examination, and uh, we're going to have 15 minutes each. We'll start with Matt uh, asking Shabir questions. Now, how we have this uh, structured is uh, we're going to have the questioner. So in this case, uh, Matt, uh, he can take roughly a minute to uh, ask his question. Then we would give, um, and then we would give Shabir roughly two minutes to, to answer. And uh, we'll do roughly five questions uh, per 15 minutes. So that being said, uh, gentlemen, the floor is yours. Uh, we'll hand it over to you, Matt, uh, when you're ready. Uh, feel free to ask your first question. All right. So a series of questions to get to the, the main issue. Uh, Shabir, would you uh, agree that uh, your God has attributes of personhood? Yes. Okay. Wow. Man, I like that. He just answered a question. Just answered it. That's my do. I never heard it. It caught me off guard. I used to a three-minute answer, but thank you. All right. Um, would you agree with me? Seriously, it took me up. It, it was good. Uh, it's quick and slick. It's all right. So, okay. So, would you also agree that attributes of personhood are such things as fellowship, love, uh, awareness of others, and things like that? Yes. Okay. Was Allah able to express those full attributes from eternity? I, I don't know of any teaching in my tradition that comments upon that, and I haven't studied the philosophical issue related to that, so uh, I wouldn't be able to answer that. Okay. So you can't answer whether or not, this is correct, that your God, whom you have been defending for decades, who you recognize has attributes of personhood, and that w awareness of others and love is part of personhood, and yet without that, how does he express it? And you say, well, I don't know, right? That, that's your answer. As I said, I have not studied that issue, okay. and uh, I, I like your grace in allowing for things like this to be studied later on. Uh, it okay. is not something that uh, I expected in this debate, and uh, I did not prepare for that. Okay. Uh, so I don't want to uh, venture an answer which might not be correct. You know, I, I respect that on all seriousness. I say the same thing. If I don't know, I don't know. I got to study it. Okay, so will you then study it uh, and give me an answer? Communicate it, write me an answer. Uh, I will study it. Um, whether I can commit to communicating with the answer to you or, or not, that's another issue, but I will try. I, okay. I mean, I, I would, I would benefit from, from the exchange and I would be glad for the communication. And of course, this does not have to be our last uh, engagement together like right. this, uh, you know, we can come back and discuss uh, some such issue, or maybe we can identify someone who has studied the philosophical issues uh, to the extent that you have. And then, you know, those two persons can, uh, yourself and the other person can actually do that. I I'm not well grounded in philosophy. 
Well, uh, when we discuss the issue of the Trinity and Unitarianism, we are going to get into issues of logic, which I know you know about, and uh, logic necessitates the foundation of uh, philosophical discussions. Colossians 2.8 says uh, that not to be held captive by vain philosophy. Did you understand what I said about the context of the Trinity uh, exemplifying the fullness of, of, of personhood, expression of personhood from eternity? Did you understand that concept? Yes, yes. And of course, uh, I'm not totally devoid of, of any thoughts regarding that. Um, uh, but, you know, again, I don't want to venture uh, okay. too much into offering things which are just uh, guesses. But because you're pressing the point, allow me to say this this much, that uh, before God created and everything else, uh, it, 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 um, he was perfect as as he was, but you're saying for him to be perfect, he has to have the qualities of personhood. I don't know if that if that is a necessary uh, uh, derivative from from the idea that God is uh, God is perfect. Um, if if there are other uh, entities uh, who can be who can relate to each other as persons, and God is not able to relate to them as persons, then this would seem to be a lack, something that God is unable to do. Uh, but of course, there are things that God is uh, not able to do. So I'm not even pressing this further um, because God can do everything that is logically possible. Christians and Muslims can uh, agree on that. Uh, but if you're asking me before God created everything else, if God alone existed, uh, you know, is there something lacking in him because he's not able to, uh, to uh, express personal qualities? Uh, I don't think that there's anything lacking in God in, in at, at that stage. And okay. uh, the um, idea of creation, uh, did you want to say something well, else? Yeah, you've gone a long time there. Uh, but, okay, sure. Uh, Go ahead. I would, I would suggest you study the essential and emergent properties related to the nature of something because you'll uh, you'll find that there's problems with it inside of uh, Islam. At least we can have discussion about that in depth if you want. Another potential problem of Unitarianism is the issue of solitude. If we take an individual, and we can only do this by analogy, uh, this is not my best argument, but it's something worth discussing. If God relates to us, we recognize his personhood, and yet we're going to say that any single person existed for forever without fellowship, without love, without communion. My question is, how is that not a form of torture? Do you have any idea how to answer that? Well, it will be, you, you said yourself, uh, Matt, that many things are enigma enigmatic about God because uh, God is so different from everything else we have uh, seen and touched um, uh, from everything because we haven't seen and touched God. Uh, so he's so different that we can hardly uh, prescribe for God how he should have been before he created uh, the universe. But add to this, uh, James McGrath in his book, The Only True God, has pointed out that uh, in the uh, first uh, century of Christianity, the idea of creation ex nihilo was not yet introduced uh, or not discussed at least. It became so in the middle of the second century. In Islam as well, I don't see that the idea of creation ex nihilo is a, uh, is a necessary uh, Islamic well, we're not talking about ex creation ex nihilo, and it is found in the very first letter of the very first book of the, of the Bible, but that's another topic. Um, the one and the many. Are you familiar with this issue of the one and the many? No, I'm not familiar with this issue. Okay. All right. Uh, so one duck, lots of ducks, duckness, and, and particulars, universals and particulars. One of the underlying discussions, I'm just going to help you out here. 
one of the underlying discussions that deals with the issue of logic and knowledge, and the precondition of all of those things must be God. He's the initial and the ultimate. The nature of your God, the nature of my God is different. Your God cannot account for universals and particulars where my God can. That's something also worth discussing because if we have another discussion, I'll be asking you about it uh, later on. Let's get to back to the issue of the, of the doctrine of the Trinity, how it's arrived at. So this is it. How much time have we got left, Don? Donnie? How much time is one minute? Yeah, uh, no, um, we've got uh, eight minutes and 40 seconds oh. for, for you. Oh, I, I was thinking it was five minutes. Okay. Oh, <laughs> all right. All right. Well, then here's this thing. <clears throat> the Trinity has arrived at, and you came the closest to touching it, but you still haven't really dealt with it, and uh, not completely and sufficiently. So I'll grant you this. You come the closest so far. So we know the Bible teaches Isaiah 43, 10, 44, 6, 44, 8, 45, 5. There's only one God doesn't even know of any other God, just one. We know in Philippians 1, 2, the Father's called God. In Hebrews 1, 8, the Son is called God. The Holy Spirit is called God in Acts 5, 3 through 4. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all, all knowing. 1 John 3, 20, uh, John 21, 17. And I'll answer the question here about why Jesus said he didn't know the day or time of the hour. This is a good time to insert this. It has to do with the wedding feast uh, it's an idiom out of the wedding feast. When a father uh, had a son and there was another a father who had a daughter, they would arrange the wedding. They would have to arrange this ahead of time so that the people would then be ready to come for the great feast and wine and killing the fatted calf and all this other kind of stuff. The fathers would say to the son, build a, an additional room, John 14. I built, uh, he says, I'm giving you other mansions, other rooms I've got for you. Because I go and I'll come back for you. So what he's saying is the father would say, you have to build a room onto the house. And the, the son would not know when the room would be officially finished when the father, out of respect to the father, would say, you can now go and get the bride. So the phrase was, no man knows a day nor the hour when the father will say. It was an idiomatic expression. It didn't mean they did not know. It was an uh, idiomatic expression of respect. I've had this verified from writings that I, uh, books I've read years and years ago, and as well as Jews as well. That's the answer to that. Okay, sorry. I just wanted to make sure that you um, concluded that with a question. Here's the question. We're gonna give uh, Shabir two minutes to answer. Okay, thank you. So the Trinity says each is called God, each is all-knowing, each has a will, and I can show you the Holy Spirit stuff. Each loves, each speaks, each fellowship. Now, have you examined the scriptures dealing with these so as to say that they're not true? Yes, as I said, Matt, uh, I recently bought your book, um, the uh, Defense Manual, and also your book co-authored with David Wood, uh, which is a teacher's training manual on how to spread preach the gospel to Muslims, and I've seen your charts in both of these books. And I find that your, your chart is especially deficient when it comes to the Holy Spirit, because to prove the personhood as a distinct person from the Father and the Son is required. The Trinity is like a three-legged stool uh, that must have three equal legs, and all three legs have to be there. Each one of the three has to be a person and they have to be co-equal and co-eternal. Now, the, the Holy Spirit is not so clearly a distinct person from the Father and the Son. And uh, uh, moreover, like when you cite that the Holy Spirit is God, that could be God the Father. Uh, but it's another way of speaking about God the Father. Have you seen my uh, chart? 
the Holy Spirit on Karm, which answers your objections? As I said, uh, Matt, I've seen, seen it. it. Well, I've seen okay. it on Karm, actually. I've seen okay. it on Karm um, because I okay. realize your book was published some time ago and you may have more updated information on your website. But the same All deficiency right. is there. You cannot show uh, that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person sure, from yeah. the Father and the Son. Moreover, uh, when you are site, when you are filling up these charts, like you have, uh, you know, Father is the person, uh, Holy Spirit is the person, um, uh, the Son is the person. Uh, you have maybe one or two verses for for each one, but to show that the Father is a person, you don't need one or two verses. This is all over the Bible. You don't need to show that the Father is all powerful and all knowing and all of that. He's all over the Bible to show that the Son is equal uh, to the Father. Uh, this you're only seeing you know one or two verses here and there and each one of them is debatable and for the holy spirit to prove that this is a distinct person from uh, the the father and the son uh, you you haven't even tried to show that this is sure. a distinct person from the father and the son so for sure, example uh, where where do you find that the Holy Spirit and the Son are having a conversation with each other? Or the Holy Spirit and the Father are having a conversation with each other? You don't find that, but you do find the Holy Spirit speaking to others, and the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, John 14, 26 and 15, 26. Therefore, that shows a distinction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit speaks and loves and has a will, and you can have fellowship with him, then he's by definition a person, a third person of the Trinity. It's very easy. How much time have we got okay. left? Uh, Matt, you, you, it seems that you uh, think that this is the period in which you're answering me. This is the period in which you should be questioning me. I'm trying to. I, you take it right? time there. Yeah. Okay. Let so me jump in. We've, we've got exactly three minutes and, and 40 seconds. I know it's been a little difficult to, uh, oftentimes a question is going to take a lot less than a minute to, to ask. So, uh, Matt, take, uh, you know, within a minute to ask the next question. And then, uh, Kabir will give you, um, as much time as you need really to answer. Go ahead, Matt. All right. Can you address the issue of where the Bible says on Exodus six, two and three, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared as God Almighty. So it's God speaking. I'm, all, I'm God Almighty, and he, he calls himself uh, Yahweh. Jesus says not that any man has seen the Father. So who were they seeing who's God Almighty who's not God the Father, according to the Bible? Well, you, you said, Matt, that the, the Bible is clear that this is God who actually appeared to Moses, but uh, the New Testament contradicts that because uh, Stephen, in his uh, address in Acts chapter 7, uh, says that it was an angel that appeared to Moses. Moreover, even if there was some appearance there, a theophany, what Jesus's words could mean, if these are really his words, is that nobody has seen the Father as he actually is. And uh, uh, the best you can, you can know is, uh, of God is by seeing Jesus because he has come to give you knowledge uh, about uh, the Father. Well, you took the text uh, and you misused it, Acts 7.30. It has to do with the angel appearing in the burning bush. It's different. I can show you the verses to talk about. So here again, you're replying, right? That's good. I mean, we can do it both ways. You're oh, gonna sorry. Be, we're going to have another session in which I question you and then I will have the chance yeah. to reply, just like you, you know, you've explained that beautiful explanation about the father and the bridegroom okay. and all of that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> when we have the issue of Christ 
and I do hope that you can answer the questions of the one and the many and the issue of personhood and things like this, because it's crucial to the whole issue. And what I see you doing is saying, well, I don't know them. And you're not going to discuss them. You want to get into other areas. The doctor of the Trinity has arrived at systematically, and it's arrived at by saying that all the all the members are God and are uh, have a will and and love and speak. Have you read those scriptures that teach those things that, for example, the Holy Spirit speaks, the Son speaks, and the Father speaks? They each have a will. Have you looked at those? Just curious. Yes, I've looked at them, okay. and I've studied them. Yeah, yes. You've referred to John chapter 14, John chapter 15, where the Holy Spirit is uh, obviously shown to have personal qualities. Uh, but as Raymond Brown pointed out in his two-volume commentary on the Gospel according to John, uh, Jesus' prediction of the paraclete interpreted through Christian eyes uh, would mean that uh, Jesus uh, is coming back as the paraclete. And now he realizes this is a theological problem because Jesus is not supposed to be the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit uh, uh, supposed to be Jesus. But he says, well, we can excuse that because John is not a theologian. But of course, if, if John is not a theologian, it means that one of the Bible's writers ha has committed a heresy by identifying the Holy Spirit with one uh, with the other person of the Holy Trinity, that is Jesus. And, uh, and that's just not allowed. Okay, let me jump in there, uh, gentlemen. That's uh, that's 15 minutes, and uh, since Matt was kind of leading the way in uh, in questions, there uh, we're going to give Shabir the the final word. Uh, therefore, now I'm going to restart the uh, the timer. Uh, Shabir, we're going to give you 15 minutes to uh, lead the way, ask questions, and give Matt some time to respond. So go ahead, Shabir. Mm -hmm. Okay, Matt. Uh, so you you cited uh, Exodus chapter six, uh, where um, Elohim appears to um, uh, to Moses, and he says, "By my name, Yahweh, I was not known to Abraham." Are you familiar with the fact that in uh, Genesis chapter nineteen, Abraham actually calls on the name of uh, of Yahweh? Yeah, it was written by Moses after the fact, who inserted the name Yahweh in the text. So are you saying that Moses uh, had the liberty to change the speeches of people to insert a later, uh, like a name that was later revealed? Isn't, it, isn't this anachronistic? You mean, it's, I'm not sure I understand the question. You're saying, which question is it, anachronistic or Moses had the right or what? It's like, you know, Abraham made something that we might call a pizza today. And, and Moses, uh, you know, um, represents Abraham as saying, here, honey, come, I've made you this nice pizza. Um, wouldn't that be a sort of misrepresentation of what Abraham actually said? No, uh, it doesn't apply to the text. So Moses wrote the text and he is the one who says, well, this was Yahweh at the time. So he put it in the text. Not a big deal. He's inspired. So what's the problem? I see. Okay. Uh, so uh, when when it says in in uh, Genesis chapter uh, uh, four that uh, uh, Eve got a child, and she says, "I got a child with the help of Yahweh," so uh, the name Yahweh should not have been known at that time. Is that what you're saying? Well, God knew the name, and He gave it to Moses. As Moses wrote it, He inserted it into the text for clarification. And are you saying that Moses is the first person to have known the name? No, God knew the name. We don't know who knew God's name in different ways. But it, actually, I would say, yes, actually, when I'm thinking about it, Moses would be the first one because that's when God revealed his name in Exodus chapter 3. Mm -hmm. So how is it that when we read the story of uh, Enoch, um, we're told that in that time, people started calling on the name of, uh, of Yahweh, or is it Enosh in the Bible? 
uh, Enoch. It's fine. They call upon the name of the Lord, right? It's a phrase that designates worship and adoration of the true and living God. And the phrase is put in by Moses when he writes about this and others put it in the text because it's a clarification of what uh, was happening and who he was. Mm. So uh, the name Yahweh occurs some maybe 6,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, I don't know how many times in, in the book of Genesis, and, uh, but, but you're saying that all the times prior to uh, the Exodus story, when, the name, when somebody says Yahweh said this, um, that's actually Moses inserting the name Yahweh into the speeches of these people. Sure. Okay. So well, when commentary right there is you, you went to uh, Genesis 4 1. Uh, now the man had relations with Eve and she had a son. I've gotten a man child with the help of, of the Lord. Okay. Mm -hmm. So she didn't actually say that. She must have said some other name, Elohim uh, or something else. I don't know. But we mm -hmm. have the text here is what was said. Okay. That's what so, I can but, go with. But it seems that what you're telling me, Matt, is that when you read your Bible, uh, you realize that, uh, you know, even though the Bible says that Eve said Yahweh, uh, you don't know what she actually said because it wouldn't have been Yahweh. I don't know what she actually said, but if this is what it says here, then I don't have any problem with the name of God being known beforehand where Moses did not know it. And it was revealed to him when he said, what is your name? Doesn't mean that others couldn't have known the name by the revelation of God in the Old Testament prior to that. Okay. So coming back to Abraham and the original question, when, when the Exodus chapter 6 text says that uh, I was not known to Abraham by this name, uh, when Abraham starts calling the name and his uh, children and so on call the name in Genesis chapter 19 onwards, uh, all of this is anachronistic. Abraham did not actually call on the name. Well, it says uh, in Exodus 6-2-3 that God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh did not make himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what I'm going to conclude is that they didn't know his actual name at that time. Okay. So they might have called him something else, maybe El Shaddai. And then um, Moses, in rewriting the story, he just put in the name because that's the known name at the time. Well, that's what, that was what would happen under the inspiration of God, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're saying inspiration of God, um, uh, but obviously that, that needs to be proved. So I'm going to ask you then about the New Testament. Um, mm -hmm. You uh, believe that the New Testament is inspired, um, mm -hmm. uh, of course, because the New Testament says so. That must be one of your reasons. But do you have any external reason for believing that the New Testament is, uh, is inspired? I don't subject the Word of God to external reasoning to validate it. That would then mean that my reasoning is superior to God's inspiration and would therefore be the ultimate. So it's not the Christian perspective I hold to. It's inspired. I simply recognize its inspiration. As Jesus says in John 10, 27, 28, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So we recognize the inspiration. We don't determine it. Mm -hmm. So um, once we believe that the New Testament is inspired, then naturally we will su subject ourselves to it and, and not question it. But if somebody was asking you, what reasons do I have for believing that the New Testament is inspired? What reasons would you offer that are external to the claim of the text itself that, that it is inspired? So you just, I guess you didn't hear what I just said. I would not subject the word of God to my own reasoning. Now, if you want to know other reasons besides that, 
Oh, I could easily go into the issue of prophecy, number patterns and other things that I know about scripture that I teach that people are quite unfamiliar with, uh, gematria, various patterns that are found in the New Testament to demonstrate this inspiration that cannot be just de determined by uh, just, just mere people. There's ways to do that. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, I'm very interested in the uh, gematria. Uh, can you give us an example that will show uh, that something is in the New Testament that um, must be there by divine inspiration? Sure. If you want to hold on, I'll open up my uh, information. On my you got two minutes. Okay. Uh, let's see if I can find it within two minutes. And we just hit the eight-minute mark, a gentleman, just to let okay. you know. All right. So what we have, and I could, if I could share the screen, I would, and I could show it to you if that's possible. But if not, that's okay. I don't know if is that possible to share the screen so you can see it. If you'd like, yeah, it, it, within your two minutes, Matt. Let's see if we can, can do, that. do that. Okay, share the screen. Let's see if we can do that. There we go. And you have to. There you go. You can see. There's ways to, you can look at this. This is the Greek text right here. And this is an analysis of the Greek text because in Greek, each letter is also a number. And you find in the genealogy of Jesus that the uh, ubiquity of the divisions of the number uh, of, of letters, a number of letters, a number of nouns, a number of le letters that start or nouns that start with a vowel or with a consonant are divisible by seven. You can check this out. You can look at the video later on and you can, you can uh, freeze it and take it and examine it. There's also this one dealing with the issue of uh, the account of the birth of Jesus. This is just part of it, just part of it. There's that. You can freeze a screen and look at that. There's also the issue of how I won't get into that. I don't have enough time right now. How the four Gospels in John 21, I think where verse is that it says uh, uh, they catch 153 fish. The four Gospels, aside from the 4,000, the 3,000 that were um, that were uh, that were that Jesus blessed. 153 individuals were blessed by Jesus in the four Gospels. How is this possible outside of divine intervention? This is only some of the stuff I can show you. You can take a look at this stuff. There's a whole bunch more. There's the uh, the people in, camped around the tribe. The, it's going to be the tabernacle in the wilderness. And when you add up the men that's around there and you extend them out, this is what you see, a cross. There's so much like this in the Bible about inspiration. I can talk to you about prophecies. I can talk to you about all kinds of stuff that uh, deal, with, just a few uh, seconds left, Matt. deal with the inspiration of Scripture. And that's one of the things I can do. There you go. Thanks for letting me show that. Go ahead, Shabir. Uh, take as much time as you need. So, Matt, uh, I was curious about that, partly because um, um, in my debate with Anthony Rogers, I uh, tried to show some similar coincidences in the Quran, and uh, he dismissed it all, um, as, and he, he gave us an example of such dismissal, the general Christian dismissal of the work of Ivan Panin, um, and it seems that you're relying on Ivan Panin for the genealogy in, in Matthew. Uh, so what do you think of the uh, general Christian rejection of Ivan Panin and his work? I haven't examined it, so can't make a comment. Okay. Are you aware that Ivan Panin produced his own uh, New Testament in order to get these numbers to work out like that? I'm not aware of that. Yeah. Actually, it so happens that I have a copy of his uh, book here, Ivan Panin's uh, numeric uh, Greek uh, Testament. 
So uh, to, to get those uh, details to work out like that, um, Ivan Panin did not rely on the, the Bible that you would normally rely on, uh, but he produced his, his own. So um, are you saying you're not aware of that? Well, like you, there's going to be things that I'm going to have to study as well to get okay. back with and respond to. Sure. Okay. Now, I want to... But there were other things in there. There were other things sure. that I showed you. Sure. And I would like to study those as well. Okay. Uh, so now, uh, coming back to uh, the uh, matters that we have been discussing back and forth. So you're saying that Jesus had two wills, but you notice that I was asking about two minds. Uh, are you saying that Jesus had a human mind who knew that, that he is a human being and therefore not God? Uh, and at the same time, he had a divine mind. Uh, or were these two minds somehow one, in which case... Uh, this human being, Jesus, knows that he has two minds, uh, one being human and one being God, or, or that he knows that he has a fused mind, which is the mind of God fused with that of the mind of a human being. And if it's the latter, uh, wouldn't that uh, mean that he's not a human being? Because most human beings don't know that they are God. And in fact, if a human being thinks that he is God, uh, we would think that something is wrong with his mind. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, if you say they're a fused mind, that'd be monophysitism, and that's a heresy. We don't want to go with Nestorianism either, which is saying that in the body of Christ are two distinct persons, a human person and another divine person who then would distinguish between each other. That's not what the doctrine of the hypostatic union is, which is the teaching that in the one person of Christ are two distinct natures. This also necessitates that each nature will have his own will, and we use the word will as a summation of that personhood and the attributes of that personhood. It's called dithelitism, not monothelitism, but dithelitism. Now, how it works, we can't answer. Nobody can answer that. There's lots of questions, like I said, that certain about the, about the mind of God, the working of God that we can't relate to. What we do go with is where Jesus says things like, I am thirsty. The I, the person, is claiming human attribution. I am thirsty. But he also says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the earth. Well, that's claiming the attribution of divinity. So he's the same I, is the same person is claiming the attribution of both natures. This is called the communication of the properties, the communicatio idiomatum. It's right there in scripture. Now we can see that that's a truth because that's what the scripture teaches. Now how they relate, we can't tell you the ontological essence of that kind of thing. We can't do that, but we can say that this is what the scripture reveals. And so the proper doctrine is the hypostatic union, communicatio idiomatum with dithelitism. That's the proper uh, teaching. Let me jump in, uh, Shabir, if you wanted to respond to that, maybe ask one last question, take a minute or a little bit more. We want to be a little more easygoing. Then we'll give Matt his response, and then that'll be the uh, 15 minutes. Go ahead, uh, Shabir. Okay, okay, sure. So uh, finally, uh, Matt, uh, when Jesus says, uh, of that day and hour, no one knows, uh, not even the Son, but only the Father, isn't he excluding the Holy Spirit from this uh, knowledge? Uh the Bible often records exaggerations and things like this in the scriptures. You can also go to uh, Revelation 19, 12, where it says Jesus has a name that only he knows, no one else. You can go to Jude chapter 4, or not Jude chapter 4, but Jude 4, which says that Jesus is our only Lord and Master. You'll see things like this, Genesis uh, John 19, uh, 17, 3, their only true God. You'll see things like this that are proclamations, but aren't always to be taken 
very strictly literally because they can often be exaggerations. They can also be be uh, understood in that way in the comments of how the Jewish mind thought. A lot of times what people do is they say, well, this is how they thought. This is how we think. And we're going to super, superimpose our thinking and exegetical methodology and logic upon them. It's called ethnocentricity. It's an exegetical error. It shouldn't be done. <clears throat> All right. Perfect timing. Uh, for that round. Uh, gentlemen, I got to say that was a very interesting and sophisticated 30 minutes of dialogue. Uh, time really flies by. Um, I feel both debaters, I, I feel like you both had the opportunity to ask the questions you wanted to. I do apologize if the, dis uh, the discussion went off uh, format a few times, but uh, you both kept it very professional and, and respectful. And therefore, in, in those situations, I like to kind of back off and and not micromanage the discussion. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, Shabir and Matt, thanks again. Uh, great discussion. Uh, we are now moving into um, the concluding statements. We have five minutes for the concluding statements, and we are going to hand it over to Matt. Matt, whenever you're ready. The floor is yours for five minutes. Let me minutes. get my five-minute thing going. Sorry, I should have been prepping. No worries. No worries. Take your time. As you do that, uh, to the audience, any last-minute questions, uh, please, pertaining to the topic, is God one or three divine persons? Uh, tag me uh, for the audience Q&A. Go ahead, Matt. All right. Well, first of all, thank you for the discussion. We need to have more discussions on various topics. Um so Shabir has admitted he has not studied the issue of the personhood and how this relates to the issue of Allah and the construction of the Unitarian concept of Allah not being able to fully manifest the true nature and extent of personhood. I hope that what he will do is write something up and email it to me and contact me about this so that this can be answered. Because if he does not answer it and cannot answer it, then the criticism still stands and my point has not been refuted. If he can't deal with this issue, then he should not continue to debate the issue that God is only one person because there's a challenge against it to which he cannot respond. If we're to also consider the issue that in the Trinitarian concept, the true nature of fellowship and the true aspects of personhood are fully manifested. And what we'll see is there is no deficiency, no weakness, and no room for improvement in the doctrine of the Trinity. This is critically important because it's an issue of logic. We understand that God is the necessary precondition for all intelligibility. His very nature is. And so what we see in the Trinitarian context, that we see the most efficient and minimal actuality of personhood, because it is in that context that actualizes the fullness of personhood without a non-personal characteristic that I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the debate, and without the issue of what's necessary to be creation of other beings, other things in which the fullness of personhood could be manifested. This is a serious problem inside of Unitarianism. I point it out regularly, and Unitarians are not able to defeat it, and I would wish that they would. Also, the issue that needs to be addressed is, and I don't think this is the best argument, but it's just something worth discussing. If our personhood is analogous to God, and if solitude is equivalent to torture, then why is it not that with, with a, a single being God from all eternity? I'd like to have the reasons, not just, well, we don't know what he's like. 
To be dismissive like that is not to address the real issue. And since I've raised specific questions about the specific issues, if they aren't at least dealt with in part or an attempt to deal with them, but just dismiss, well, we don't know, so we don't have to worry about it, then the argument, again, is not refuted. There's also the issue of the one and the many, the, the universals and the particulars, the universal issue of truth, like logic and particular manifestations of logical principles and truths. What's a necessary precondition for them to exist? It has to be the, necess the necessity of God's mind. If God is only one person, then unity becomes the ultimate, and you cannot de demonstrate particularities. But if we have the Trinity, then unity and particularity or unity and diversity are co-equal and substantive in the nature of the Godhead. This is worth a big discussion. It's worth a lot of time to discuss. I'd be glad to discuss this with them. And it's a serious problem. And I do not know of any Muslim who's tried to tackle this because it is so difficult for them to do so, I believe, from the perspective of Unitarianism that they can't adequately deal with it. Because anybody who's seriously discuss, discuss this and study this will realize this is a serious issue. Philosophers and logicians and theologians have dealt with this issue for a long time. Unfortunately, most people are not aware of this problem, and I'm not denouncing anybody's intelligence if they don't know about it. It's worth discussing, and it is a serious challenge to the Unitarian perspective. And if he cannot respond to this and refuses, or not refuse out of negligence, but just doesn't do that, then the argument still stands, and he hasn't won anything. He hasn't demonstrated the Unitarianism is true. And finally, I can demonstrate, and we could spend a lot of time going through just the issue of the scriptures of the Trinity, where I can show you the personhood of the Holy Spirit who speaks, who has a will, who loves, and who can be grieved, and the, and the Father who can be grieved, and he speaks and has a will, the Son who can, be, uh, who can be grieved and speaks and has a will. These are all the attributions of what we call personhood, and each one of them, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exhibits these, yet they speak intermittently to each other, and one and both send another. Therefore, this logically necessitates Trinitarian theology derived out of Scripture. This is something that also needs to be addressed specifically for each verse to show why, no, it's not the case that they are what they say they are. And I would like to see that reputation as well. I'd be glad to reproduce it on CARM and respond to it. In fact, if you were to write responses to each of these, I'll take his response, put it up on CARM, and respond to them as well. Have further discussion. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that concluding uh, statement there, Matt. I'm going to restart the clock. And uh, Dr. Ali, whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Matt, I want to um, end where we began. I, I hope that through these dialogues, we'll get a better understanding of each other's religions and even of our own religion, uh, our own religions as we proceed. But I want to make sure that at the end, we emerge as friends, uh, better, knowledge, uh, better equipped, uh, more knowledgeable than we started out. Uh, so to respond to some of your points, uh, Matt, uh, you're saying that, okay, so if God was all alone before he created everything else, then wouldn't that be torture? for God. Though I uh, admit my ignorance of these philosophical issues, I nonetheless uh, began to say that uh, the idea of creation ex nihilo was not a necessary Christian uh, belief. And uh, as James McGrath pointed out, uh, the earliest Christians may have had the idea of uh, uh, that, uh, you know, it's creation ex materia, in which case uh, we are open to the possibility uh, that the creation always existed, but in relation to God as creation 
of God. In that case, God was never alone. And so too with the love. God could have loved his creation and some of his creatures could have loved him as well. So that's that exchange of knowledge, of, of love. As for the knowledge of particulars, I'm not familiar with this uh, philosophical concept. You seem to be saying uh, that if God is only one person, God could not equip the human mind to know particulars. And uh, and I, I don't know how that follows in philosophy. I haven't studied that, uh, but uh, you've made me curious. I'll be interested in that. If, you're in, if the entire debate hinges on this point, I would say, Matt, you have won the debate. But uh, it seems to me that the entire debate cannot hinge on this point because this is a philosophical question. And it is a philosophizing after the fact uh, in the book, uh, entitled Two Views on the Trinity by Stephen Holmes and others. Stephen Holmes has uh, uh, pointed out that uh, rationalizations of the Trinity uh, are, are all after the fact. First you have the Trinity and then you're trying to come up with reasons to say, well, it must have been this way. Uh, but, but no, it does not seem that this is a universally accepted uh, theory among philosophers. It looks to me, Matt, like this is your own way of trying to justify the Trinity. Whereas when we come to some fundamental questions like how, God, how Jesus could be God and man at the same time, because these seem to be two contradictories. God is uh, perfect, the human is imperfect? How can you have the perfect and imperfect at the same time? You said, I'm not sure how it can be both. And you said, uh, there are many things which are enigma enigmatic regarding God. So if you cannot answer these basic questions, I really question the, the idea of the Trinity. You said that the spirit uh, can be grieved. Well, that means that he's a person. But then when you spoke about the father and son intermittently having conversations with each other, you did not show us a single example of the spirit having a conversation with either the father or the son. And that, thus uh, the idea of the Trinity uh, of the spirit being a distinct person from the father and the son is questionable. So if the Trinity is like a three-legged stool, it looks like you only have two legs because the third one is not really a person, it cannot hold up the idea of the uh, Trinity. And it, earlier you said that uh, the, the Spirit speaks, but even then it could be the Father's way of inspiring a person. The person says, the Spirit speaks to me, or the Spirit speaks through me, but notice that the Spirit does not uh, speak with uh, a, an audible voice by himself without being like a ventriloquist, making a human being speak for him. So the idea of the, of the Holy Spirit being a distinct person is really uh, shown to be uh, incorrect in this debate. And to me, that, that proves definitively that the, the Trinity doctrine is not correct. And uh, the, you know, the most you can have are two persons. But we even questioned that whether Jesus could be God. And uh, I referred to Jesus as a baby and his helplessness. And you're saying, well, let's uh, take the hypostatic union and the communicado idiomatum. But these are just labels that you give for, this, for something that you cannot explain. And you're just saying, let's assume that he has both qualities. He's both God and man. But that's the question. Why do you assume he's both God and, and man? Maybe he's just man, uh, but, but a great man, uh, as some of the verses that you're trying to put forward might show. But uh, he, he cannot be both at the same time. And I asked you about the two 
two minds and you go back to talking about the two wills. You cannot explain how this one person could have a single mind, which is a human and a divine mind at the same time, without being a, a conflation, a mixture, in which case, what kind of mind would that be? So I think the Trinity has been severely challenged tonight, and we must conclude that God is one person, as Unitarians believe. Thank you so much for that concluding statement, uh, Shabir. Thanks again, uh, both to Matt and Shabir. Really fantastic uh, debate, uh, some very uh, sophisticated arguments and some great discussion. Uh, we've had a great uh, chat. We've got over 120 people right now loving this debate and we've got some great questions. So that being said, I am going to uh, put a timer for 25 minutes for the audience Q&A and we will get through as many of these uh, questions as we can. Uh, what we'll do just to make sure we're moving along smoothly is um, I don't want to be too strict. But we'll give uh, a little bit over a minute if you need to for each uh, response. And uh, whoever the question is for, we'll make sure it gets the last word. Uh, so the first question uh, of the night came in from Lou. This came in all the way at the beginning. And this one is for you, Matt. So his question for you is, does a Christian have to acknowledge or believe the Trinity to be saved? What if they believe that Jesus died and rose again? but that he's a created being. Go ahead, Matt. People can be saved in different levels of ignorance, but because the Holy Spirit indwells them, they'll eventually come to believe the truth. Now, I often answer the question by getting into very nuanced details. What if you have a man on the bed? I'll try and go through this quickly deathbed and he doesn't know too much about anything and he trusts in Christ as a savior and he dies. He didn't know the Trinity. It doesn't mean he's not saved. Normally speaking, we would say that you must understand that Jesus Christ is God in flesh and that the Trinity is true. Jesus says, in, in, for example, in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And in John 8, 20, 58, you know, before Abraham was, I am, and they want to kill him for that. So there are normative things that we must believe in normal situations to affirm the truths of who he is, but there are particular instances where well, it's not that normative, you know, like a man in deathbed and just dies, which I know happens. I used to work at a hospital and knew the chaplain there, and it does happen. So I hope that answers that question sufficiently. I appreciate that response. And Matt, and I appreciate the question, Lou. Uh, Shabir, if you had anything to respond with. Go ahead. Yeah, the Athanasian Creed, which is found on Matt's website, says this is what you must believe in order to be saved. Otherwise, you are anathema, you are accursed. Uh, you, you must believe that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. So some clarity like this had to be mentioned if the New Testament writers wanted to tell us about the doctrine of the Trinity and make it essential for uh, salvation. Uh, when Jesus is shown to be claiming to be before Abraham and so on, this is only in the gospel according to John. Why only in the gospel according to John? This is a later development. It's not the original story about Jesus. Just as Moses, uh, Matt said, went back and rewrote the speeches of people to include the later revealed name of Yahweh, uh, John is rewriting the story of Jesus to uh, insert in there uh, the later concept that Christians had uh, and arrived at regarding Jesus. Thank you for that response, uh, Shabir. Matt, the question was for you. You can have the last word. Oh, okay. 
uh, I don't believe that the creed says that you have to believe that creed in order to be saved. I, I was going to look it up on my website, but I, we, you know, here we are. I don't believe it says that. And I think it's a misrepresentation of what it is. As I said, normally speaking, like Jesus it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Well, what if you're mute? Okay. And so we have these things. What I was talking about was normatively speaking, but there are always little exceptions that we can talk about uh, the issue of people on deathbeds and infants and things like that. So this is common stuff we talk about. All right. I appreciate the responses from the both of you. So here's the next question. Uh, this one's going to be for you, uh, Shabir. This one comes in from Sam Jenkins. I appreciate the question, Sam. So he says, uh, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Either he is a false prophet or he was killed, contradicting Surah 4, 157 to 158. Both make Islam false. What is your response to this question? Mm -hmm. Uh, by the way, um, uh, Matt, I just looked it up, the Athanasian Creed from the Anglican Church of Canada website, and it says right at the very beginning, whoever would be saved uh, needed before all things to hold fast to the Catholic faith, which is thus described, including all of these points about God being uh, three persons in, in one divinity, or three divine persons in one God. So as for uh, Jesus predicting his own death, uh, this uh, seems to be a later rewriting as well. Uh, just as Matt said that Matt, um, Moses had a certain um, a leeway to rewrite things, we see that the New Testament writers actually did rewrite. Matt says that Mark is the first gospel and John is the last gospel. You can see from, from Mark to John that there's a lot of changes in the story regarding Jesus. As for uh, John, John says that uh, when the disciples visited the tomb, they did not yet know the prophecy that Jesus was to rise from the dead, which means that Jesus didn't actually say it, despite the synoptic gospels saying that he did. Thank you for that response, uh, Shabir. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Okay, well, you just admitted that the Gospels teach that and do say that. In John 2, 19 through 31, Jesus says, destroy this temple three days, I will raise it up. In the Greek, it's a gero, which is the future active, active indicative first person singular, which means Jesus is saying that he will perform the action of his own resurrection. Certainly, the writer of John believed that Jesus was God in flesh who could then raise himself because this is an attribute of God. This is a clear teaching of the deity of Christ right there and Jesus' predictive model. If you're to say, well, the, the New Testament's been corrupted, then why would Surah 1094, which you know where I'm going to go with this, why would Surah 1094 say that if you have any questions about stuff, ask those who are reading the book from before you. The truth indeed has come from uh, them asked them before if we're if the bible's been corrupted by 600 ish ad well then why is it that the quran would say go ask them to uh, to check on uh, the truth uh, of these issues so there you go mm -hmm. okay so um the the bible as well um says you know this is what yahweh did ask your father uh, ask your father and the elders uh, but of course if you're talking about a disbelieving community the father and the elders will not confirm that yahweh did all of these things but it's uh, it's part of rhetoric it's saying look this is so true that even if you were to do some investigation about it ask the people who you want you will find that this is actually true so the quran is not actually saying that everything in the uh, old and new testaments are exactly as god uh, revealed 
heal them. On the contrary, the Quran is showing that uh, many things in the Old and New Testament actually need correction, and the Quran is correcting that. For example, Genesis 1, it says uh, that after God created everything, in Genesis chapter 2, God rested uh, from everything he had uh, created. But the, new, uh, the Quran says in Surah 50, verse 38, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, but no weariness touched him. And as for the prophecy, Jesus said uh, this in John's gospel, but that's not a promise. That's not uh, it, it, it literally uh, about his own resurrection. It is John's reinterpretation of that statement. Otherwise, a critic might say, look, Jesus predicted the de destruction of the temple and that he would rebuild the temple, but he didn't. And then to account for that failure, John's gospel is writing it as though Jesus was actually talking about his own body. So you do not really have a proof here that Jesus predicted his own uh, uh, resurrection from the dead. Thank you, Shabir, for that response. Okay, so this next question now is for uh, you, Matt. This one comes in from Munim Zia. I appreciate the question. And he asks, Matt, how can Christians worship the person of Jesus without worshiping the human nature? If you split natures within Christ, that is heresy. If you don't, that is idolatry. We don't uh, worship just the human nature. Um, when I worship my Lord, I don't visualize him. I don't worry about it. I just know what the scripture says. Matthew 2, 2, 2, 11, 14, 33, 28, 9, John 9, 35 through 38, Jesus is worshiped. Uh, he's called God in Hebrews uh, 1, uh, 8. He's worshiped uh, and God instructs people to worship him in John, in Hebrews 1, 6. So this is what the scriptures teach. And this is what I do as well. It's not an issue of dividing the persons or dividing the natures and saying, I'm going to worship only the divine and only the aspect. It doesn't work like that. We get in, this does, however, get into the issue of a question that often is raised if jesus died on the cross and only his human nature died how's it a sacrifice of divine value and the answer lies in the communication of the properties along with the hypostatic union i could do a bible study with you guys sometime and answer the question and we can delve into the issue the foundational responses that would then talk about this question even more but uh, to respond we don't worship one nature over the other nature. We worship God revealed in Christ as a person, as he himself is revealed in scripture, as he did in the Bible. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that response. Uh, Shabir, go ahead. I think the question is well put, and this is a serious matter because idolatry is condemned in the Bible and Christians want to stay far away from idolatry. When you admit that Jesus is both man and God uh, at the same time, by worshiping this one person, you are, you are worshiping both uh, the, the man and the, the God. And to worship a man is definitely idolatry. So the best way out of that is to say that Jesus is not shown to be God in the New Testament. He's shown by John and Paul to be a great uh, entity, but uh, below God. God. And, and that solves the problem. There is no trinity. And uh, to say that uh, this is uh, idiomatum is just to put a technical name on, on the fact that you cannot explain how this happens. Uh, how can you say that this one human being who actually walks like a human being, talks like a human being, and he says that he is subordinate to the Father, he prays himself uh, to the Father. Uh, uh, how can you say that this is actually God here on earth? This is a problem. Calling it uh, say hypostatic union and communicato idiomatum is just hiding behind techni technical names that most people do not understand. Explain it in a way that people can understand. I do. Thank Let's you, have a Bible study and I will. <laughs> Matt, it was your question if you want to have the, the final response. Oh. There. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I've already addressed this, uh, Shabir. Uh, he was made under the law, Galatians 4.4, made for a little while, Lord, and the angels, Hebrews 2.9. And the one person said, I am thirsty, I'll be with you always. The one person. This is evidence of the communication of the properties. This is exactly how we get it from Scripture. It's not just if, if putting a label on something because we don't know what it means. We don't do that. You can tell from the you know my opening statement on the one and the many issue, the nature of personhood, logic, particularities. I really study these issues, and I've been debating this stuff for sent for not centuries, but for decades. And if you want, you know, I think you're a nice guy. We'd probably get along great. I'm serious. Uh, I'm serious. You probably would. You ever ever in Idaho? Come over here. You got a place to stay, and uh, we'll have a good time. But uh, maybe we could just have a discussion. I think it would be nice is to have a discussion like here. We just talk. We go through and just talk about stuff. The thing that we would do if we're sitting down in front of each other, you know, couch and a cup of coffee or something like that. But the answers are there on CARM to these questions and issues. And maybe we could have a discussion like that. All right. Well, thanks for that response, uh, Matt. Thank you guys for keeping this engaging and uh, definitely a debate to remember. Uh, so let's get a question here uh, for you now, Shabir. Uh, this one comes in from Science and God. Uh, Bill Morgan. Thank you for the question, Bill. He says, uh, do you believe man has never heard the voice of the father? If so, who did Moses receive the Ten Commandments from? So uh, this is, uh, you know, the, the New Testament's conception of what happened in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament that we, we hear that nobody has ever uh, heard the voice of the Father. Otherwise, reading the Old Testament, uh, I wouldn't blame Jews if they thought that they heard the voice of the Father. Uh, and yet we might say in a philosophical manner that uh, this could not be the actual voice of the Father because to, to give voice, uh, you would have to have a human vocal cords, at least if we're talking about human voice and so on. Um, otherwise, God might be acting like a ventriloquist throwing his voice into the bush or on the mountain or in the valley or whatever the case might be. Most likely uh, he spoke uh, in, in, as mind to mind. In the mind of, uh, of Moses, he could hear this voice and he knows that this is not his own and this is the voice of God uh, speaking to him. And God knows best uh, what actually happened there. Uh, so we, we can say that uh, the problem that Matt pointed to by saying nobody has uh, seen the father, uh, and, but when it says in the Old Testament that they saw the father, they saw God, that must be one of the other persons in the Holy uh, Trinity. What it could mean is that nobody saw the father, saw the father in his uh, full and, and real sense. They saw some manifestation, some glory, some indication of him, but not the actual person. Thank you, Shabir, for that answer. And thanks for the question, Bill. Uh, Matt, if you wanted to respond, go ahead. Sure, I would love to discuss that uh, from script, the scriptural standpoint. It's something I've debated many times. So you can also go to Exodus 24, 9 through 11, Numbers 12, 6 through 8, uh, Genesis 17, 1, 18, 1, Exodus 24, 9 through 11, uh, or Amos uh, 10, 9, uh, 11, 12, 4, Amos 4. There's a lot of verses that we can go through and talk about that. But nevertheless, uh, it's not correct to say that you have to have vocal cords in order to speak. Uh, God can certainly cause vibrations in the air to be his voice. And we know from Matthew 3.17, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I well please. So it's right there that God spoke. That's what the scripture said. People had to hear this. You don't have to have um, a vocal set of vocal cords in order to speak. Okay, it's just not necessary. So that is to uh, restrict God to the created order. And it's a presupposition that's not um, 
necessary. It might be something that you want to uh, support in Islam, but it's certainly not one in the Christian worldview uh, of that. And so uh, man has never heard the voice of the father uh, when Moses did this. That's a good question in Exodus 3.14. Uh, we could discuss that sometime too. There's somebody's, Sometimes the answers get into very involved, and I like to discuss them, but don't have Thank time. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that response. And uh, Shabir, the question was for you. Go ahead, have the last mm -hmm. word. Yes, I, I should add that according to the Quran, a vision does not grasp God. Um, in any case, uh, the idea that Matt is saying, well, you know, the, the voice could be through vibrations in the air and so on. I'm not denying that God can do anything, but th this seems a little bit uh, uh, unusual and, and we should have uh, a, a philosophical way of working that out too. Uh, but to say, look, God proclaimed, this is my son. Uh, this is the New Testament writers writing a later idea about the life of Jesus. Because think about it, especially with John's proclamation where um, uh, John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice that nobody else later on in the whole story says, oh, we know who you are. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We were there when John the Baptist proclaimed it. And nobody seemed to know that. Otherwise, the uh, Jewish leaders would be walking into a trap, like, uh, you know, getting Jesus uh, crucified uh, and then finding out, oh, wait a minute, we crucified here the Lamb of God. We crucified God himself. Uh, so it's not likely that uh, this was actually proclaimed in the witness of people. This is a later story inserted back into the life of Jesus. Thank you for that, Shabir, and thank you for the question. Great question so far to the audience. Uh, let's get a couple of these super chats in now. Uh, this one comes in from uh, Ra. Thank you so much for the $5 super chat. This uh, question is for you, Matt. So uh, she asks, with regard to your chart, would you say that if the Trinity concept did not exist, those verses would show that the Bible contradicts itself. No, a contradiction occurs when one statement makes another statement impossible and both statements are said to be true. There's nothing contradictory or logically impossible about the idea of one God existing in three simultaneous and distinct persons. The reason the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at is because of what the scriptures actually say. One God, many verses on that, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are each called God. Each one has a will. Each one speaks. Each one have fellowship with, is all-knowing, etc. This is perfectly logical and necessary when you look at the doctrine of the Trinity. Finally, the word person was, I believe, from my research, was borrowed from uh, acting. When they have a mask, which is a persona in Latin, and then different persons, uh, individuals would use them to, to play different characters. It's just a, a word that was borrowed. And what it means is, in a theological sense, uh, self-awareness, awareness of others, and what we call personhood. And each three, each of the members of the Godhead express these issues of personhood, yet there's only one God, and and yet they're all three called God. That's how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. If it's not true, then it has to be demonstrated that the Holy Spirit is not called God, or Jesus is not called God, or the Spirit of the Father is not called God, or that each don't have a will, each don't speak, and that's it. And with respect, Shabir has not done that. He's dismissed verses, but he's not done that. And this is how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. If we want to have a discussion on just these issues and those verses, I say let's do it. I believe I've actually shown that uh, the holy the, the, the idea of the Holy Trinity de developed among Christians after the New Testament was written. It took a few hundred years. The New Testament or the Old does not uh, um, necessitate the doctrine of the Trinity. The questioner is right on point here. All of these verses that Matt is quoting uh, can actually be put together in a simple way by saying there is only one God, and under that one God there are many divine agents of God. One of those agents is Jesus. Maybe he's the great 
greatest of all of the agents, the firstborn of all creation, as some passages say. Uh, he is the one through whom all things were created, as John chapter 1 says. Uh, but uh, that does not mean that he is God, and that does not mean that there is a trinity. So there is a hierarchy with God on top, uh, Christ be below God, and men below Christ, and women even below man, as uh, um, uh, as Paul puts it, and uh, in the end, uh, Jesus will hand everything back over to the Father, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, so that God will be all in all. Thank you for that response, Shabir. Uh, Matt, the question was for you. Uh, sure. Final response. Okay. Uh, it's irrelevant to say that people develop a trinity later. The issue is what do the scriptures teach? Because if they can develop it, they can develop it out of the scriptures. So the Bible does teach there's one God and each one's called God. Each one has a will. Each one speaks. Each one can be grieved, etc. And so that's what we need to look at. And, and they need to be looked at. Each verse has to be looked at. Not to mention all the other things at the beginning of the debate, which Shabir says he's not familiar with, which he still needs to study. And hopefully he'll get responses to me. And I, I will put them up on my website and then respond to those as well. We could do that if he's interested in that. If not, well, let me know. But uh, and through whom all things are created. This is what he said. That means then that Christ himself had pre-existence because it means that he had to exist previous to that created order. So what Shabir is actually doing is admitting a pre-existence of Christ who then said, God, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world, uh, John 17, 5. So he is admitting that he has had a pre-existent nature, a pre-existent essence, which supports the doctrine of the communicatio idiomatum, that the attributes of the divine nature are ascribed to the single person. Pre-existence, that's why Jesus says, glorify me with the glory I had with you, and by the Bible would say all things are created through him. This means pre-existence. Hierarchy, yep, and I'll, I'm glad you brought this up. I'm trying to get to this quickly, but the reason he's going to hand all things over to the Father is because Jesus will eternally be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6.20 and 7.25. He always will be in the human form as our eternal mediator in that priesthood sense, and that's why he will give all things over to the Father, and that it does not mean he's not God. It means he's our eternal high priest. So much more I could talk about, but don't have time. You guys are doing great. I appreciate it. Uh, great responses to some great questions. Uh, this next question comes in from Muhammad Karani, and he says this question's for for both. Um, so he says, and I'll just read it word for word. He says, "A like unity of God is in common in some religions. Is there a source of Trinity out of Christianity slash out of the Bible? If yes, where?" And then he says, thanks. Um, he said for both, I think it might more so be directed uh, at, at Matt, but oh, whoever go. would like to start. Yeah, I'll, I'll go that way. He can respond more. Um, I'm not sure I understood the question. So if, if I'm not answering it properly, that's, you know, I'm just not quite getting it. I think he's asking, are there other Trinitarian ideas outside the Bible? Is that, do you think, Donnie, that's what he's saying? Does that seem it, what he's saying? It's it kind of sounds like it. He's saying uh, there is like a unity of God, that commonality in, in many religions. Okay. But is there a source of specifically the Trinity, but outside of the Bible, outside of Christianity, okay. you know, maybe with the ancient Greeks or something like that? OK, well, let me say that in all the studies that I've done, I've never encountered a Trinity in any other religious system. I have encountered triads. 
A triad is three gods. A trinity is one God, three persons, and they are different. So I personally, I have never encountered a Trinitarian concept outside of the New Testament uh, context. So I, I just don't know of any other trinities, yet, triads, excuse me, yes, and then polytheism, monolatry, and other things. Uh, that's, 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 there you go. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Shabir, take a couple minutes if, if there's a few things you wanted to respond to. Go ahead. Um, sure. So uh, as for outside of uh, Christianity, yes, there have been triads, and, and the Hindu religion has the trimurti. There's Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu, uh, who are three gods working in some kind of unison together. Um, so is that uh, very different from the Trinity? Well, some conceptions of the Trinity start with the one, and then their difficulty is to explain how that one could be three. So you might say uh, this is like five giving out light and heat at the same time. So we have three aspects here. We have the original fire and we have the emanations of light and heat from it. So there it is easier to see that we're talking about one uh, or originator. Uh, in, in Matt's um, description of the Trinity, we start with the three. This is called social Trinitarianism. When we start with the three, it's hard to, to conceive how they can be one. Like, what's the oneness about it? It's almost like I said, like three dots uh, marking the corners of the triangle. Uh, we can connect the, the lines and make it a triangle in our own minds. But all we have really are the three dots. So if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like this, three persons acting in such unison, and they are so uh, attracted to each other that they cannot be separated, as Matt says, if one of if, if they separate, then you know the, that that would be destruction. Uh, so. It, you, you must always have them in a unity, but still you have three gods in a united uh, way. Uh, or is this really one God? Like, where is the one God? Where is that triangle that I'm looking for? All right. I appreciate the responses from both of you on that question. This next question comes in the form of a super chat, and it's uh, somewhat related to this last question, the last question you guys just answered. Uh, so, Matt, if you had a few things you wanted to respond to, of course, you can do it here. This question is... Uh, what is, it comes in from Ra, I appreciate the super chat. She says, what is the difference between a being and a person, Matt? Well, it would depend on definitions, uh, and that's what it comes down to. So um, we could say the Trinity is a being of three persons, but that's not a contradiction. It just means that you could have like one cluster of grapes with individual grapes. And so you have what's a cluster and what's an individual grape. This deals with the issue of the one and the many. And you can start to see how important this topic is becoming when you discuss the nature of the Trinity. And it relates to other things in Unitarianism as well. Um, so it all depends on how you want to define it. Biblically speaking and theologically speaking, the term person is related to the doctrine of the Trinity and its context theologically means that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each exhibit the attributes of what we call personhood, having a will, self-awareness, awareness of others, fellowship, etc. So in that context, that's what personhood means, what it means to be a person. But a being is an entity, a living thing. And so a living thing can have different forms, different attributes, different ontological characteristics, emergent properties and qualities and things like that. And so they're different. And then in the context of the Trinity, we have discussed more what the being is, how persons work and how they relate. And so it's a good question, but it's just in order to really depth to get into the depths of it, we need to uh, get further into definitions and the logic between how the elements relate 
and it also touches on the one in the many issue. Now, I'm not just saying this to, to, uh, to snow people. This is actually a good question. I've had many good discussions like this, and it takes just longer than the time we have here to really delve into that. It's a very good question. Well, thank you, Matt and Shabir. Uh, go ahead with the response. So this is the sort of question that it was necessary for the New Testament writers to elaborate on if they really wanted to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Otherwise, people fall into heresy uh, by thinking that there are three beings, which, of course, would mean three gods. So what's the difference between person and being? I, you know, given even the short time, it was necessary for Matt to explain this. We are here three persons on the screen, myself, Donnie, and, and Matt. But we're also three human beings, so we're three beings. Now, if we think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, think of the baptism scene. The Father is speaking from heaven. The Son is on the earth, and the Holy Spirit is coming down in the form of a dove. So we can see the three. Where is the one being? It looks like we have three different beings here who, according to Matt, are also three different uh, persons. So uh, we, if we start with the one, it's hard to see how you get three. Uh, persons. And if you start with the three persons, it's hard to see how you get the one being who is God. And if you imagine a, a being who is God comprising of the three persons, don't you have a fourth entity here who is divine? Thank you, Shabir. And Matt, the question was uh, directed at you, so you can have the final response. His final comment demonstrates he doesn't understand the issues I've raised about the Trinity and the issue of personhood. I went through the one, two, three issue, one person, two persons, three persons. I'm going to put this article up on, uh, or my opening statement up on CARM tomorrow. I really suggest that he go through it. I don't mean this in a condescending way. It's just this is uh, something I think that, that, please, I really do mean that that way, uh, that it's something worth studying and worth noting. I have these kind of discussions with people and we're not familiar with them. and. You know, we don't know everything, so we have to learn. You know, I think he's asking questions that I need to study as well. And just as he's admitted that, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, I forgot, I lost my train of thought. But um, there's nothing in the Bible, there's nothing in logic that says the Trinity is not possible. If it's not possible, you have to demonstrate logically that it's not possible or not coherent. That's not been done. I've never heard anybody be able to substantiate anything where incoherence is there with the Trinity. You have to be able to say, this is why logical provisions, logical steps, why it can't be. If it cannot be done, then the Trinity is not falsified. The issue then becomes, what does the scripture say? And the revelation of God is one God, the Father's called God, the Holy Spirit's called God, the Son's called God, each have personhood, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where the issue of the Trinity is arrived at, not to mention the other things that I mentioned in the opening statement. I appreciate that response, Matt. Uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to pick out one final question. We are going on uh, two and a half hours. Uh, great endurance, both uh, Matt and Shabir. Uh, time really has flown by. This has been a great debate and a great audience Q&A. Uh, thank you both, uh, Shabir and Matt, for keeping this professional and sophisticated. So we can this brawl if you want. Make it better. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Uh, so this this last question, actually, before I get to this, I should give a shout out to everybody who uh, showed their support with super stickers, super chats, uh, not with a question, just uh, thanking us all for for the debate, for making this happen. So I appreciate it. Um, and also, I've gotten a super chat about an after show. I think there's two after shows. Matt, I believe you're having one. Yes. And um, so a double after show. That's how much okay. people enjoy this debate. The other one is on Logical, Plausible, Probable channel. Uh, he says it's going to kick off as soon as this debate ends. So okay. uh, this last question comes in in the form of a super chat 
from Saint Beloved. I appreciate the support. This question is for you, Shabir. Uh, Saint Beloved asks, does the Quran say that Mary is part of the Trinity? Catholics basically lift her up really high and maybe that's what it refers to or maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Saint Beloved says, go ahead, Shabir. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, uh, it's a common misconception that people say, well, oh, the Quran has got it wrong because it says that the Trinity is the father of the, the Mary and, and Jesus. But the Quran was not defining Trinity uh, when it, the reference was made to, the, to Mary being taken as a God apart from, uh, from God. Uh, this is in Surah 5, verse number 116. The context is that on the day of judgment, uh, God is going to be asking Jesus, did you tell people to take my mother uh, and, and me as two gods apart from God or in addition to God and Jesus will say I didn't preach any such uh, thing so it wasn't the definition of the Trinity it more as the questioner pointed out might have been a reflection of the uh, known fact now uh, that uh, uh, people are taking Mary to be uh, a deity and uh, they will be uh, put to shame on the day of judgment because it will be shown that they were not really going by what Jesus said. Jesus proclaims, I did not say anything except what God commanded me. That is that you should worship uh, God and God alone. Thank you, Shabir. And thanks for the uh, the support, St. Beloved. Uh, Matt, if you had a response, go ahead. Um, yeah, the issue here is one that Muslims have had to deal with for a while. Uh, Five one sixteen. Behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, didst thou say unto me, worship me and my mother, as gods in derogation, uh, derogation to Allah. I don't know where the writer, uh, where Muhammad would have gotten this, except to say that the Roman Catholic Church, which was moving into apostasy by that time and was elevating Mary to such a degree that this was included by error into the idea of the God head. Now, just so you know, some uh, Catholics have actually uh, posited the idea of including Mary in the Godhead. It's just a demonstration of, of error that began very earlier. I speak heavily against Roman Catholicism. So I think that uh, what Muhammad did here was fail to understand the, uh, the true issue of the doctrine of the Trinity, just as he says in other places, don't say Trinity, say God is one. But isn't, the Trinity is saying that God is one, one being, one God. And the idea is that the Trinity uh, concept in the scriptures is hinted at as being three gods. And so that's something we could ferret out sometime and discuss it. But uh, that's what I see. Thank you, Matt. And Shabir, you get the final response. Yeah, Sidney Griffith in his book, The Bible in Arabic, has pointed out that the, the Quran is very much aware of what the biblical teaching is. But the Quran is uh, doing two things. One is that it's correcting the narrative which is there in the Bible. And two, uh, the Quran is... Uh, criticizing the people who have beliefs by uh, sometimes exaggerating the, the oddness of their beliefs and the incorrectness of their beliefs in order to make the point stick. It's almost like in the New Testament, it says, uh, you know, covetous, covetousness is idolatry. Well, of course, so we, we cannot see the con connection between covetousness and idolatry, but it is obviously a, a hyperbole in order to get the point across. Uh, finally, I would like to say that uh, I'm so delighted that Matt was so kind and he extended to me an invitation to come and stay in his house and that's yeah. what true friends are, are like i appreciate that matt thank you very much and yeah. if you come to toronto i will do my best to extend the best hospitality i can for you and let's remain friends let's continue this wonderful discussion okay well we can work up a hospitality battle and see who's better <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you will win i know you will oh, win. i don't know i was just thinking you're gonna well when i've got asperger's i i have problems so my, ask my wife
<laughs> well, you both did a great job. Uh, people are loving this debate, pointing out how respectful and intellectual it was. Uh, I do want to uh, apologize to anybody in the chat. If I missed your questions, if I missed your super chat, uh, you know, we do have a format and a structure that we agreed upon and we are going on two and a half hours. So uh, if we got to every question, super chat, we'd probably be here for 10 hours. Uh, so <laughs> I don't think any of us have the endurance for that. So again, Shabir and uh, Matt, thank you uh, so much for being uh, just so generous with your time and being willing to make this epic debate happen. I both of you felt like you had plenty of time to ask your questions, address each other's points and make your arguments. Uh, before we shut it down, though, I want to give you both the uh, opportunity uh, for some final words, some final thoughts before we uh, close down the debate. Uh, why don't we start with you, uh, Shabir? Thanks again for, for doing this. Yeah. So, uh, Donnie, thank you for inviting me to this platform. And uh, Matt, thanks for agreeing to have this dialogue with me. Uh, it was certainly uh, very interesting and um, stimulating to interact with you and uh, with your ideas. I like uh, the fact that you bring philosophy and logic into this uh, discourse, in addition to the fact that you are very well schooled with uh, uh, the verses of the Bible. You're able to rattle off verses off uh, memory uh, one after another. This is certainly very important impressive. And uh, I hope that we will continue this uh, dialogue and uh, discussion. I will try to study the philosophical issues that you raised. Uh, and uh, uh, hopefully, we'll have an, in, uh, an ongoing discussion uh, about that. Thank you very much, Shabir. I appreciate those, those final thoughts. And Matt, uh, some final thoughts, final words? Well, I like that Shabir thinks I'm so great. Um, uh, so when he does stay with me, uh, he'll that'll be cured within a couple of minutes, but um, I do thank you for the debate too. It was respectful, and uh, you're mature in that, and I appreciate that. And I'm ser serious. I certainly hope that I did not speak down to you in any way. I did not mean to. If I did at all, don't please understand that. Um, it can often come off like that when I say, "Well, you're going to study this," and so I hope that wasn't the case with you. If it if it was, I apologize. There's no way that was meant. Um, if you are interested in looking at, when I release my uh, the, the thing about tomorrow, I mean, the my opening statement tomorrow, I'll put it up there on the debate section, karm.org forward slash debates. You can see my opening statement. If you want to then respond to it at your leisure uh, and study it, let me know. And with your permission, I'd be able to uh, reproduce what you say and then respond to that. Maybe you could even respond to that again. We might have a yeah. couple, three, we'd leave it at that. Um, but if you want to have other discussions, um, I'd be willing to do that with you. And uh, I do appreciate the time. Thank you for uh, uh, arranging or allowing yourself to have a conversation <laughs> with me. And I do appreciate it. And I'm in Idaho. How far away is Toronto from Idaho? Is it uh, very far? It's the other. It's the other side. Oh, we're we're <laughs> your west. We're east. I think okay. me and Shabir are a lot closer than uh, Shabir and Matt. So <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Well, I'm over here. So if you're ever over here, all right. I'll we'll sure. find a way to all get together one day. That'd be fun. Meet in Denver. <laughs> so two and a half hours really has flown by again. Thank you to the audience. Thanks for your support, your awesome questions. Uh, Shabir and Matt, thank you so much for an awesome debate. Uh, to everybody in the audience, please share this around uh, so more people can see this, uh, this really fantastic debate. And we'll see you over on the two after shows, uh, Matt Slick and Logical, Plausible, Probable. That being said, uh, God bless everybody and standing for truth. Peace out.